Yes, that's exactly it. Is it's like now he takes the name Xavier. He takes the name Xavier and takes over the school. And it's unbelievably gay. It's super fun. He's in charge of the kids now. And he starts wearing this new outfit that is fabulous. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where Homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is returning guest Spencer Ackerman, Pulitzer Prize winning national security reporter for the Daily Beast, who appeared in our Beast episode and is now here to talk to me about Eric Magnus Lenzer, the master of magnetism, the one and only Magneto. Spencer, how are you today? Connor, thank you so, so much for having me back. I had such a great time on what has quickly become my favorite podcast, the thing I look forward to the most at the beginning of my week. And of all things, to get to talk about Magneto, one of my absolute favorite characters in fiction, not merely uh, in the X fandom. I also want to ask, at the risk of it not being any of my business, I wonder if there might be a place on the internet where fans of this podcast and guests on this podcast could congregate, because I would really love to be part of a Cerebro-centric X-fandom. Huh, well that's incredibly sweet. Um, I will think about that. I have seen podcast fandom Facebook groups and things kind of require a lot of moderation, and I don't think I want to do that but there could maybe be something i'll think about it connor be our magneto oh my goodness that's a <laughs> lot of pressure but i uh, i'll try i suppose i will contemplate the question and get back to you i hope that was not too hot no it's okay well to all of our listeners observing it is hanukkah or depending on when i get this episode out i am pretty behind this week so i can't promise a Tuesday release. I wanted to do a Magneto episode for Hanukkah very specifically because, well, just because there's a lot of thematically fun things there and it seemed like it'd be cute. Shout out to David Grossman, friend of the pod, who was going to come and do this but has recently had dental surgery and I was not going to make him answer my question. I was like, I gotta do it for Hanukkah. So thank you also to friend of the pod, Spencer Ackerman, for stepping up and delivering unto me just pictures upon pictures of all the notes that he has taken from this episode, <laughs> uh, which I'm very excited about. We don't really have anything from last week to go over, thankfully. I always like when I make it out of an episode without needing to correct something. So I think we can jump right in to Magneto. This character rules. Obviously, he is one of the most iconic characters in comic books, certainly at Marvel, and certainly in the world of the X-Men, I would love to hear from you what you love about this character, why you were so excited when I asked you if you wanted to do this. I'm just going to let you go. Take it away. Thank you. So first of all, how amazing it is to have this discussion of Magneto on Hanukkah, which is the most Magneto of Jewish holidays. 
Connor, what is your relationship to Hanukkah? So, as I've said before on this podcast, I was not raised religiously Jewish. So, I don't have a huge relationship with Hanukkah, except that I would celebrate it, like, with friends. And I have been pursuing Judaism more as an adult, but I do not have a menorah at the moment because I have a kitten that wandered into my house four weeks ago and uh, she lives here now and I don't want candles. And I looked on Amazon and there is a traditional LED electric menorah. I loved that it was called traditional (laughs) on the ad, you know, that traditional LED from back in the day. But uh, it wasn't going to come in time. So I've just decided, you know what, I uh, I will have my first real let's celebrate this next year when there isn't a small animal leaping all over the room. But yeah, I mean, my relationship to it is more secular, I guess I would say, um, much as my relationship to most Jewish cultural things. You know, my mother is Irish and I grew up nominally Christian and it was like my parents are not religious. So just sort of casually did Christmas and Easter. At this point, I've done the homework Mm -hmm. because when you're 32 and trying to get bar mitzvah, you have to do a lot of reading that you probably wouldn't have had to do if you did it back when you were 13. Did you get bar mitzvah at 32? I'm working on it right now. Oh, congratulations, man. Thank you. Yeah. For those who don't know, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah. I I have a great rabbi and I am simultaneously learning Hebrew and Krakoan script. Oh, that's the two alphabets I've been trying to get a handle on the last several months. I would say I'm doing better with the Krakoan, unfortunately, since that's extracurricular. But, you know, I can write Shabbat Shalom. I was like, look at me. I can do it. But yeah, no, so one thing I've really been doing this year is taking stock of the holidays and really looking at the holy calendar and doing all of that in a sort of more thoughtful way. I have always, um, as an adult, sort of observed Yom Kippur, Mm -hmm. not in temple, but just sort of in the sense of who have I wronged in the last year? What should I be doing better? that kind of stuff. And I did the fast this year without the rabbi even asking me to, which I was very proud of myself for doing because I love to eat. So all I know is our Muslim cousins, Ishmael's people, I do not know how you guys do a whole month. I'm in awe. Because one day had me climbing the fucking walls, truly. So some tips. (laughs) The week before you want to start slowly weaning yourself off caffeine. Yeah, I did not think of that. So I was atoning very sleepily. Mm-hmm. I guess that's sort of my thing is like my relationship to my Jewish heritage is very much about the ethnic heritage. It's not as much about the religious heritage, which is something that I think is interesting about Magneto. Magneto is not religious. Magneto loses his faith entirely after the Holocaust. You know, Magneto is someone for whom it is an ethnic point of reference but it's not something religious to him which enables him to then have like acolytes and do sort of christianized things that are not very jewish (laughs) at times i mean what's your relationship to hanukkah and what makes it the most magneto of holidays which is a fun idea i mean i i get where you're going but i for the for the Goyish listeners. Like I said, I'm very, very <laughs> excited to be here on, on Hanukkah to have this uh, most Jewish of X discussions. Yeah. So I think it needs to be said off top that for a whole lot of the X-Men and mutant kind broadly, 
the metaphor is very broadly associative and applicable, more so with, you know, many characters than with other characters, but there are characters in the X-Universe that sort of in encapsulate many people's experience of, of oppression. It is important, however, that Magneto be recognized as a Jewish character. I agree. Magneto is not Magneto without his Jewish experience. And, you know, I talk about Hanukkah here, and we're going to basically be, you know, telling the things that uh, we don't typically tell uh, the goys about Hanukkah tonight. Don't say it that way. That sounds conspiratorial. <laughs> Like we're a cabal keeping the knowledge. <laughs> Hanukkah is a story really about like certain pathologies of American Jews because its outward presentation is a very like Charles Xavier holiday. It celebrates a particular mm -hmm. miracle of things that this particular people can do as a, as a matter of, you know, overcoming, you know, all of this hardship thrown in their way. That story is total bullshit. Yeah, and it's right around Christmas. We're just like you. Yeah, like, the whole point of it is a commercial holiday. Yes. So little Jewish kids on the path to assimilation, like, don't feel bad about not getting, like, something comparable to a Christmas experience. What they don't realize that by accident of the calendar they are celebrating is essentially, like, Jewish ISIS revolt. The Maccabees, this is essentially a Magneto story in, like, Xavier rapping, because it's been poorly misunderstood and communicated. Well, ha, Maccabi is the hammer, right? It's yeah, exactly. It's holiday. So basically, like, the sanitized version of the story is that the, the miracle of the, of the oil happens to celebrate uh, the, the Maccabean triumph at kicking the Seleucid Empire um, up north in Syria out of the temple. Um, and holding out in this in this valiant quest. The, the broader story, however, is that there is an extremely violent civil war around 150 years before Jesus, in which the Maccabean faction, which will become known as the Hasmoneans, basically start killing Hellenized Jews. Yeah. And this becomes, over the course of something like seven years, something that morphs from an extremist movement hijacking a liberation struggle to an outright liberation struggle. And like, that's why it's, it's you know, it, it gets into some Magneto stuff. However, it's important, you know, whenever Hanukkah is also appropriate as a kind of like national liberationist, anti-imperialist holiday, like the Maccabeans and the Hasmoneans like make a deal with the Roman Empire, like the, or rather the, the rising hegemonic Roman Republic. And, you know, one of the problems with the Hasmonean dynasty is that it's, you know, functionally a, you know, a Roman puppet state. And like this will eventually become like under Herod, straight up, you know, a Roman occupation is, you know, now, yeah, now, now Christians yeah. <laughs> will, be, will be familiar with. So that's kind yeah. of the backstory. And like, you know, the Maccabeans, you know, did some really fucked up stuff, much like Magneto. We're talking about, like, forced circumcisions. Right. Like, this was primarily, certainly in its genesis, about, like, purifying Judaism. And, like, that shit just doesn't go well. Well, because people had assimilated and become Hellenic and had started practicing Greek religion and worshiping Greek gods and all of that. 
And then it went further than that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm explaining for people who don't know what Hellenization is. Yes. Basically, people had started worshipping local gods because of imperial expansion instead of being Jewish. And you can see why, like, that's, you know, not going to be the kind of holiday story for this time of year for the purpose that such a holiday is being invented. Right. You know? So instead, it's about the magical lights, which is something that Christians are familiar with because it's like the star. And like, also, most religions have a light festival in the winter because it's dark. So it's a, it, the story as it evolved became a sort of universalizing thing. But in the actual Hebrew calendar, it's a very minor it's holiday. It's incredibly minor. Like, this is not a holy time right. for, the, for the Jewish people. All of the, you know, miracle of the oil stuff is, is in, it's just propaganda. Like, don't, this is not <laughs> something that happened, you know, we're, we're, we're a 5,800-year-old people. Like, this right. isn't something that happened in the time of the Bible. Like, this is something that happened in, like, fairly recent, like, antiquity. Right. Like, we have a historical record So, like, of there's it. no miracle of an oil. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, it's like, were we slaves in Egypt? Probably not, but who knows? But we definitely didn't have a miraculous oil land. Like, you know, because we know this didn't happen. It's a lot more like the Christian Bible in that way, where we know a lot about that time period, and a lot of the things in the Bible simply don't track with what we know to be historically true so anyhow that's just one of the reasons that that i found this like such an excellent entry point um into magneto i'm almost i have like such such an embarrassment of riches that i want to i want to start with but to just choose one you started out by calling him eric lencher yes that is not his name it's not but it is well that's debatable it is not his birth name, as has been established at this point, but it is the name he uses, and it's the name he still goes by. So I think it is his name. I agree with where that argument is coming from, but I think it applies to the name Magneto. I believe his name is Magneto. But Charles calls him Eric, and his friends and lovers call him Eric. I think that's important. Except when they also call him Magnus, which happens differently. And, and, and in the story, history is, is, is before. Well, but that's because it's before the name Eric was established. The, the big thing that you're going to have to understand, and we'll get into this in the character file, is Magneto's backstory is haphazardly retconned together over the course of the 80s and 90s, and is a complete mess. And so in 2008... They established that his birth name is Max Eisenhart, which is a more Jewish name than Eric Lenzer. But at that point, Charles has been calling him Eric or Magnus for 20 years. So it's established that while that's his birth name, he stopped using it the second he got out of Auschwitz and he hasn't used it in decades. Yes, this is important. This is this is foundational to the character. Yeah, I would agree. That his name ceases to matter in Auschwitz because that's how Auschwitz worked. Right. This is a character for whom, like, you will forgive anything about a sliding timescale. I'll speak for myself. Yeah, we'll get it. There's reader questions about that, and I simply don't care about the sliding timescale with this. Yes. The Holocaust is so central to this character that I just think you have to make it work, and they've found ways to do it. The essential point about this character is that a Holocaust survivor is what they describe on the cover of the very first issue of X-Men, the Earth's most powerful supervillain. Yes. Magneto's power 
is incomprehensible. To give literally the most recent example, Magneto in Sword Number One. In Sword Number One, yeah. Tilts. Uh, what did what did, what does Cable say? It's a hundred ton, a hundred thousand ton space station. Uh, the peak on its axis. Yeah. Because Magneto wants it in a specific place, and he does this while having like uh, a conversation small talk with, with Cable. Cable. Right. Magneto is the most powerful Jewish character in fiction. Bar none. And we need to talk about the kind of character he is, the kind of power he represents and wields, and its importance in a Jewish tradition. Magneto embodies its pain. And the reason why I bring up Max Eisenhardt is because we learn that the particular experience Magneto has during the Holocaust and then inevitably in Auschwitz, I'm going to get emotional during this. That's allowed. So, um, like, bear with me. Um, first, he sees both his father and his more streetwise uncle fail to protect him and fail to protect their entire family and ultimately sees that his father is this, as he sees it, naive figure. A figure who had served in the German army in World War I and thought this would mean something. And is basically a character very familiar to the Jewish experience of the Holocaust, who doesn't yet want to accept that like he has entered a very Jewish phase of history, and that it's happening again now. And in particular, it's happening like it just never had on, on literally an industrial scale. And Magneto, because of that, ends up like trying to navigate, along with his family until his family is ultimately no more, experience here. And it's important to recognize that there's a, a very strong pathology in the Jewish community after the Holocaust that Magneto voices at an important point in his experience as a character in Claremont. When Claremont is telling the story of the first time Magneto and Xavier met, it's clear to Claremont that Magneto, who he knows then as Magnus and not yet as Eric, is an Auschwitz survivor. They're at work on uh, people experiencing extreme trauma from their Holocaust experience uh, in Haifa, in Israel. And they meet Gabriel Haller. They meet Gabriel Haller, and one of the things Magneto says indelibly to Charles Xavier is that this time, mutants will not go meekly to their graves. Right. And it's important to recognize that Magneto, like this whole argument, is full of shit. It's an anti-Semitic argument. It destroys the experience of people who are trying under the most desperate circumstances like his own father to survive any way they could to include fleeing when that became simply, you know, no other option presented itself. And I don't ever, I will be getting into many ways about why Magneto is right, but Magneto is never right about this. But it's a feeling that a lot of survivors have. Yes. And it's a real thing. And I think that it's worth, to, to backstory here just a little bit, that story is in the 80s, but the, the story about Magneto and his family is not told until 2008. That's Greg Pak's Magneto Testament, which is worth reading. In terms of 
the 60s, that first issue where he's the most powerful supervillain, he's not a Jewish character until the 80s when Claremont establishes this, and Claremont was a Jewish writer himself. So he adds this whole layer to the character. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to provide a little context. This is something that was added to the character, and a lot of what Claremont does with it is finding a way to justify Magneto's characterization in the past by making him someone who was so traumatized by his experience in the Holocaust that he has reacted in this way that is not always right, but is very understandable. And one thing that he's affirmatively wrong about is this idea that the Jews who died in the Holocaust didn't fight hard enough, which is something that you hear from people sometimes. I mean, it's also, and I'm glad, so grateful to, to Greg Pak, who always and forever will be a friend to the Jewish people for this, because he has Magneto himself in his experience in Auschwitz subvert that. Magneto participates in what history records as the revolt at Crematorium 4, the name of which should really make your fucking skin crawl. Can you imagine the heroism, the bravery, of the people who, having watched the most excruciating things human experience has to offer happen, take what they can and kill their way out of a machine designed to murder them. And, making matters worse, that machine operated through making its victims complicit. To the agony of, of readers who know about this stuff, but also just breathtaking in, in the ability that, that Greg Pak and, and the artist Carmine DiGiandomenico demonstrate is that they have Magneto be what is known as a Sonderkommando. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't know what that is, those were the Jewish internees who had the job of taking the corpses, stripping them of valuables to include teeth. gold fillings in teeth, rings on fingers that would sometimes have to be sawn off, and other dehumanizing atrocities, always knowing that should the camps be liberated, they would be the first to be murdered because they would know the secrets of what the Nazis had they done. They know too much. So right. death is certain for a Sonderkommando even more than death is certain in Auschwitz, and I just, I'm not able to read that story without, like, having at least one, you know, good cry, because the story is just so agonizing, and Magneto has no powers in Auschwitz. It would be, of course, you know, an impossible story to tell if I right. get the beginning, and I've always hated this, about the beginning, as much as in I- In the movie. Yeah, as much yeah. as I appreciate where it's coming from, I've always hated it because it begs the question... Well, then why don't you save the day? And, like, what, how could you put a Holocaust survivor in that position? Right. So, Magneto has no powers in Auschwitz. He emerges from it to become pretty much the most powerful being there is. And the most powerful symbol of the power of an oppressed people deciding that they have the ability not just to rewrite history, but to avenge it. Yeah. And that is always and forever who Magneto is to me. Magneto is the true Avenger of mutant kind. Right. Talk about an Avenger. Most of the time they just say that when they mean cops. I want to say something about anti-Semitism. 
Go for it. We are. What what episode would it be more fitting than? Let's just do it. Let's go deep. Somehow our first episode together didn't get me any hate mail, so I'm feeling uh, ballsy. Go for it. Oh, I'm going places with this one. Magneto understands something that Xavier doesn't, and by design of the Xavier character can't, which is that mutants aren't hated and feared. Mutants, at least a strain of anti-mutant politics that Magneto responds to, he responds to it because he sees it operating like anti-Semitism. What is anti-Semitism? Why is anti-Semitism eternal? Why did Leon Polyakov have to write four fucking volumes of a masterpiece called The History of Anti-Semitism? The answer to this question is anti-Semitism is eternal because anti-Semitism is a form of regime legitimation. Anti-Semitism occurs when a regime has other shaky social or economic foundations and needs an internal enemy to mobilize its control over a population. Other groups play this role. In other cultures, yeah. But that is the Jewish experience of exile. That is the anti-Semitism that doesn't go away and that, left unchecked, we can see how far this really does go and we can see in our own day and age how quickly the veneer that civilized cultures tell themselves that anti-Semitism has no place here, how quickly that is punctured. Magneto understands that, and that is why he fights for liberation. Magneto is as traumatized and self-hating and despairing and deeply depressed of any character in an X-universe that's full of them, and it drives him past the point where he can recognize himself. And then he snaps himself out of it, and so much of his struggle, so much of his story, has been about what can Magneto come back from? What can Magneto permit himself to do because of what rationale? And then what can Magneto survive and Magneto at his most poignant, I think at his best, um, is written as he asks himself this question. If he is forever damned, if he is guilty, if he's beyond redemption and always has been, but had no other way that he could operate. One thing that Magneto always is in a way that contrasts in a much different way to both Xavier and to Emma is that Magneto is for the children in just a much different way than they are. Both Emma and Xavier are more comfortable using mutant children as an army than Magneto is. He's not innocent of this. He does this depending on when they're mutants with Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Yeah, I was going to say, Wanda and Pietro are sort of the only thing he does there. There is a version of that story told by Lee and Kirby, Um, in X-Men number four, in which Magneto doesn't realize that they're his children and he has saved um, the Scarlet Witch from a pogrom. And that is why they follow him. Like Quicksilver... Well, he doesn't know they're his children until much later. Must must be some retcon. Because it's a retcon. I just don't want to say, like, let's, you know, if we're being real about all of this, Magneto does take some child soldiers. 
but nowhere near like the New Mutants or the Hellions. He doesn't train platoons of them. That's right. Which is what Charles and Emma do. And, and like, we'll get to what I think is one of the best periods in Magneto history when he does become the New Mutants. When he's headmaster. forced to. Right, yeah. That is my favorite Magneto period also. But one of the things I've loved so much about House of X, Powers of Ten, Dawn of X, and now Reign is we're seeing Magneto, you know, smiling as he descends onto the ground, chased by crowds of cheering mutant children, yeah. chanting his name, recognizing that whatever this man did, he did for them. Everything that he suffered, he suffered on their behalf. And in just sword number one, the joy on this new character's face, Wizkid, who's one of the six. He's not new. He's oh, not okay. New. Well, I didn't know that. Let me tell you what he's from, because you're going to laugh. He is from Louise Simonson's Exterminators in the 80s. No! He is one of the characters who teamed up with Rusty and Skids and Boom Boom and Richter in the Inferno to disrupt Nastir's pentagram made of babies. I am so embarrassed I didn't remember that. That's okay. He's a really obscure pole, which is an Al Ewing special. Oh, yeah. Peeper is also on that team. I mean, how many people really remember, you know, Amelia Vaught, too? I love Amelia Vaught, and I am very excited that Amelia Vaught is on the Sword Station. But you're right, as uh, it was put in Xavier Files review by Zach and Nola, Amelia Vaught is essentially Xavier's third most important retconned ex. And frankly, the fourth, if you count Erica's one, which I do. (laughs) she hasn't had the most although it is Amelia in that flashback story in the 90s I want to talk about who goes to Auschwitz with Charles to confront Eric about stuff so there's fun stuff there but continue I just I felt the need to step in the point I wanted to make about Wizkid is that Wizkid like reacts to Magneto because he recognizes that he's in the presence of one of Krakoa's founding generation someone without whom Krakow is impossible. And I love seeing that because throughout Magneto's character history, once Claremont defines him in Uncanny 150 as the Magneto that we start to know today, we see it's his relationship with children and with his legacy that's both an anchor point to him that snaps him back from the points of moral no return. You know, famously, it's in Uncanny 150 when he realizes that he's injured and might have killed 13-year-old Kitty Kitty Pride. Yeah. You know, of course, it won't be lost on us, the subtext that, like, this is a Holocaust survivor. That she's a little Jewish girl, right. Holding a Jewish girl. And at that point, like, all of the fight goes out of Magneto. And he sees himself as this corrupted thing he realizes everything about himself, like everything he wanted to do, he has failed. He's at. he's failed so utterly in a way that crushes him. He was never prepared to recognize that he was a villain, that he had become, you know, monstrous. And here he's unable to cope with the weight of that. And that becomes his character progression pretty much to uncanny, you know, 275 in the Jim Lee Claremont reboot, which is a fucking great story. I cannot believe how great if you have not read the 1991 x-men one to three the claremont jim lee one yeah 
Claremont's last story. Like, as an adult, read it again. It's so fucking good. Um, I can't believe that a story that good is the highest selling comic book of all time. Like, what a glorious thing, right? It's pretty rewarding, right? So yeah. anyway, like, we see it again in what I think is a pretty bad story, House of M, which isn't Magneto's fault. This is often misremembered. This is basically Quicksilver trying to give the Scarlet Witch the kind of happy ending that he wished for her. And all of the stuff that, you know, supposedly Magneto has done to enslave the world, that is Quicksilver's projection of what his father wants. Right, and Wanda's actualization of what she perceives as Quicksilver's vision That's of what right. their father wants. It's all at a remove. Magneto is not culpable for the House of M, and I think that ought to be remembered. But what's significant about that is, like, at that point in continuity, these are his children. Yes. And this is how his children see him. Yes. His children see him as a tyrant. His children see him as a monster. There's an issue of the Vision and Scarlet Witch miniseries that's basically like, you know, guess who's coming to dinner? And, <laughs> like, at an Avengers holiday party at the Vision and Scarlet Witch's house, like, the Avengers are horrified to see Wanda inviting her father. Right. Like, none more so than Pietro. And, like, she's trying to make sure that Magneto has some kind of relationship with his grandchildren. And, like, no one there is willing to... Which, don't worry about it. That's complicated. Yeah, but what's significant about it is that, like... <laughs> the Avengers pretty much have the balls to say Magneto should not have a relationship with his grandchild. If that, like, yeah. despite the wishes... Of, like, the Scarlet Witch. Yeah, who is the children's mother. Right. Like, he's just like, and, and it's just like, the, the kind of story that really just serves as a reminder that Magneto will never be anyone but a man who twirls missiles over his head in the universe that he operates where, you know, mutant sovereignty is not recognized. And that's really significant. In the first Secret Wars, which is, you know, at a period where, like, on the character trajectory... Magneto is more aligned with the X-Men than he is aligned with, with villains. Captain America is like, what the fuck is he doing? Here? What's Magneto doing here? Yeah, no. And what I love about the reaction is it's Wolverine, the most apolitical of mutants, who pops his claws at Captain fucking America and is like, fuck you, you have no right to judge him. And notably, Wolverine and Captain America are old war buddies from World War II. They have a history. They have a history. And Jim Shooter wrote that. <laughs> no comment. Can you believe it? Jim. So, like, Magneto doesn't really, like, recruit children in the way that Xavier and Emma do. I will say one thing he does do, and this is 60s Magneto before any of the Jewish Holocaust survivor stuff is established, but he does create the Savage Land mutate yes. to act as... That's I, I was getting there. ...a force. And he treats Lorelai in particular as though she is sort of a daughter kind of character. And he's willing to use them. And the Savage Land mutates are complicated because are they mutants? Are they technically not? Back when the story was told in the 60s, the X-Gene mutation thing was not part of Marvel's setup. So there was no distinction then. But now it's like a complicated question with Krakoa. And I would love personally to explore that in the current stories, because I think that some of those characters are really fun. But yeah, go with what you were saying. I just wanted to point out, I'm like, the one time he does do it is when he creates 
those mutates, but they're not other people's children. They're like his children. You know what I mean? It it's still like pretty close to a character killing moment, though. Like this is not something like he's engaging in genetic experimentation. It doesn't really work with the version of the character that we know later, but neither do most of the stories in the sixties, frankly. That said, like I I had a whole section in my notes that was like Magneto does as I can show you. Magneto does fucked up stuff, underlined mutates. Yeah, well, the mutates are probably the most fucked up thing he does, frankly. Yeah, there's there's really no, like, accounting for that. And, you know, some of us who might be interested in writing Magneto um, <laughs> have some ideas about ways in which, like, you really do have to, like, square, like, whether it is, like, outright genetic experimentation or, like, fundamentally you know, exploiting and, you know, even enslaving people. An indigenous population, yeah. Yeah, like, you, Mag- Magneto has to be held to account for that, and he never, ever has been. That said, um, you know, what, what really does need to be underscored here is that, like, we see a vision of mutant power. I, I mean, not a mutant power, but, uh, through mutant power, the portrayal of an unstoppable Jewish power in a way that's just simply unique in fiction. The point about Magneto's relationship with children is that he, more explicitly than anyone else, Wolverine will take this position during schism, is like, he believes himself to be committing, you know, necessary atrocities so the next mutant generation cannot do that. Right. And, like, that's very much a self-justification for a shitload of atrocity. And also, and this is a point made in Uncanny 200 during the trial of Magneto, the lived experience of much of the world's leadership and certainly the outcome of its prevailing hegemonic economic system. My favorite thing about the trial is that Gabriel Haller is his defense attorney. I know, it's a gorgeous... And Jim Jaspers is the prosecutor. Yeah. Do you know why that is? That's because Claremont wanted to use Jaspers and the Fury for Uncanny and planned to and so seeded it there with Jim Jaspers is prosecuting and Gabby Haller is the defense attorney. And then Alan Moore and Marvel had a legal dispute about the characters he had created for Marvel UK. Oh. So Jim Jaspers and the Fury had to be taken off the page. And what he ended up doing instead this is just fascinating to think about where the story would have gone is the adversary oh, right. of is course. supposed to be Jim Jaspers. That's why Roma's involved. That's why it's all that stuff. And Nimrod was supposed to be the Fury. So uh, I believe I've heard both you and uh, the Jay and Miles podcast. Oh, okay. Because the other thing that's really fun is just to bring back around like all of the Jewish themes Mr. Sinister, who of course will later be revealed to have been the doctor experimenting on prisoners alongside Mengele at Auschwitz, was also created to fill the role of Jim Jaspers because the mutant massacre was supposed to be a Jaspers plot also. Oh. So a a lot of iconic X-Men characters exist purely because Alan Moore had a dispute with Marvel that prevented Claremont from using Jaspers and the Fury. That was eventually resolved. So by the time Claremont came back in the aughts, 
he was able to use Jaspers and the Fury for his storylines. There's this great moment in the trial of Magneto when Gabrielle Haller says to essentially like the international criminal court parallel that they have. So how many of you have been warlords? Just a question. Just ask a question. <laughs> because, you know, at, at his best in, you know, in the hands of a canny writer, uh, Magneto is an excellent tool to examine myths of regime establishment and myths of bloodless regime maintenance. And he does a lot of fucked up stuff. Yeah. This cannot be overemphasized that, like, we are talking about someone who kills on a scale familiar to, like, Mal. Like, we, we, are, we are really, you know, talking about someone who's not a theorist, but a practitioner of liberation and is willing to be as ruthless as he believes necessary. But at the same time, when you look at a lot of his character history, he's attacking nuclear weapons. Like, he is, he is both pursuing uh, what he will describe as denying the overclass the power of just a few men, none of whom have anything to do with the Mutant Liberation Project, from destroying the entire world. And he has the power to change that, and he insists on doing that. And he considers that decision, if he is going to live in a world in which individual people make that decision, he demands to be one of them. And to have the means to accomplish it. You know, one of the reasons that, you know, the Hickman, Lino Yu, X-Men number four is one of the best single issues of all time is you have Magneto at Davos explaining to the people who run the world, not the UN, but Davos, the World Fucking Economic Forum, uh, the way the world will operate now and the terms on which mutant kind will set. And you got this, you know, as well, and we talked about this in the Beast episode, of him doing that with the, the, the ambassadors in Jerusalem in House of X-1. But, you know, here he is wearing a suit, sitting down eating a steak, and giving the sort of speech that he would give in 1963 twirling a missile over his head. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. It's the fulfillment of the character in so many ways. Krakow is the fulfillment of Magneto. Xavier compromises vastly more than Magneto compromises. Way more. Yes. That's why so many people, readers, who, I mean, obviously this era is very popular for the most part, but there are very loud detractors. And a lot of those people are, in my view, people who are more sympathetic to Xavier's assimilationist position and who don't like the fact... I mean, they keep saying the X-Men are villains now. I'm like, well, only if you consider Magneto to be a villain. Because he won. He has won the battle for the soul of mutant kind, to some extent. More than Charles has, certainly. Yes. I mean, Magneto, you know, says explicitly in, in the Hoxpox issue that explains this, like, Charles, all of our disagreements before, they are in the past now. I am entirely on board with this. This is a fulfillment of my life's project. This is mutant sovereignty, mutant, and not just mutant power, but mutant superpower. He is now willing to show enough growth that he doesn't need to conquer the world. He just needs the thing. And he's done this before. When he comes under, um, during the Fraction run to Utopia, he literally kneels before Cyclops. Yeah. 
he talks about how proud he is of of this boy he's been you know trying to kill for like 20 years of their life because magneto recognizes that mutant sovereignty is all he truly needs to fulfill his vision that was what genosha was supposed to have been about as well right but basically krakoa is xavier having a face-saving way of recognizing that magneto is right and in a way that like by terms of the status quo he must be right because moira keeps coming back and saying like every other way we die it every other way i have tried nine of them and none of them have worked we have to do this like we have to basically last time i threw in with apocalypse because i was really desperate and guess what still didn't, still didn't work, work. So I think, like, basically Hickman has resolved that argument. I think we have talked about this before. That doesn't mean we have reached the end of X-History and the last X-Man. No. I think that, you know, there will inevitably be, and ought to be, and ought to be explored, ideological fractures. If you're a member of the Acolytes, you know, how do you really feel about, you know, being around all of these, if you'll pardon a really terrible pun, ex-cops? You know, Sarah Century said on last week's episode about Jean Grey that one of the problems she's having with this era is that she doesn't buy Jean happily working with Magneto because it has always been such a a third rail for her, Magneto just generally. And unlike Cyclops and the other characters who experienced Utopia, Jean was dead. So Jean never had the reconciliation with Magneto that those characters have had in the more recent past, nor did she have the reconciliation with Magneto the first time in the 80s because she was also dead for that, which is why they form X-Factor in the first place, because right. Jean refuses She's like, oh to my go. God, Magneto runs the X-Men. Yeah, I refuse to go back to the mansion if Magneto's in charge. That's ridiculous. You know, now that you mention it, apropos of our last conversation, Hank works with Magneto before Jean works with Magneto. Yep. So that's, that's interesting. The last thing I want to say about Magneto is that as we do, I hope not the last thing we've got a whole episode. well before we get into you know all the other fun stuff um <laughs> I I cannot wait to hear your character file on this extreme this one's a doozy character. this is why you may not be hearing this until Wednesday because I have a lot of shit to do and we're not going to talk about I'm I'm explicitly at this point like telling this to a friend of mine who's very interested in this conversation like I'm not talking anything about like Joseph or any of that bullshit I'm going to cover Joseph next week on the Rogue episode. Great. You do whatever you like with Joseph. I'm not interested in it. He's hot. That's all I really have to say. <laughs> As someone said on Twitter the other day, they were like, manga-style Jewish Fabio should not work. And yet, and yet. it did. And I was like, and yet it did. It really did. Not necessarily on a character level, but you could understand why Rogue was really into it. She'd already had regular Dilf Magneto. Right. So... You know, why not have young Magneto also? If I'm rogue, it feels like a good idea to me. Especially if I've been doing nothing but fuck Gambit the last 10 years. God, we have, like, really. Here's the thing. I did not expect to go in this direction, and this is very far away from the place I was going, but we're just, we're here, so we're going to stay here for a moment. That's Cerebro, baby. We just go. (laughs) I don't think Magneto works as a horny character. I don't think he's an especially horny character. This whole thing with rogue is horny. Um, yes, it is. I will say I like how Mike Carey wrote it in Legacy, but otherwise, like, the 90s stuff is goofy, for sure. The cover of Uncanny 274. Where she's, like, nude and, like, clinging to him. Exactly, like, that is very much, like, I don't know how much Philip Roth Jim Lee has read, but that is very much, (laughs) like, Magneto Unbound. 
the problem also is when you think about it too much, and like Rogue's about twenty. Yeah, and Magneto's like 80. in that story, and Magneto's like eighty years old. So you're just kind of like, eh. now as we'll get into in the reader questions, and I'll get into the tracker file in a moment. He was de-aged at one point, but it is a weird relationship for sure. And and the reason why I think the the horniness doesn't work with Magneto is because like you you see during the relationship with Isabel oh I guess we should also say like after for those who don't know and I'm sure you will do this in the character file but I think it's necessary to just like bring in a little bit of context at this point Magneto is in love with a woman named Magda who he meets in Auschwitz they escape Auschwitz they eventually well, Testament actually Testament actually reckons that they knew each other before Auschwitz they knew each other before Auschwitz but they escape Auschwitz she's together. she's a Romani she's girl Romani, yes. so, which is important as like the yeah yes the other context they escape to Ukraine. They live in Ukraine for something like, I guess... In the Carpathian Mountains for like a couple years, yeah. And then, like, after Magneto exposes himself as a mutant, basically to stop himself from having his labor exploited, he's deliberately being underpaid by some, like, big shot, uh, they essentially, like, kill his daughter yeah, and prevent him from saving her. And once... The, the weight of that sits on Magneto. Magneto kills everyone in this winch mob. And Magda leaves him in disgust. Because she's, she's like, you're a monster. I can't do that. Can you imagine an Auschwitz survivor both saying that and an Auschwitz survivor hearing that? Right. And this, like, essentially shatters his, like, ability to, to feel a kind of romantic love. And he goes back to that when um, there is that you know, scene with Isabel, you know, several years later, in which, like, she is trying to have a sexual relationship with Magneto, and, like, Magneto, in a way that, this is in, uh, I believe, Classic X-Men 19. Yeah, this is when he's Nazi hunting. Magneto says to her, essentially, like, I'm just too fucked up about this stuff, and, like, I don't think I can really... But I also think that, um, it's funny because it's, like, it's mostly just weird because she also fuck Scott when Scott's depressed. It's sort of for plot function, but Lee Forrester. Yeah, Lee Forrester is turns up at one point and they have like an affair on her boat. Which he feels very guilty about. He does. But I mean, I don't know. My very personal reading on all of it is that like I find Magneto to be a very horny character, but specifically like for Charles Xavier, which is a very different thing. I would agree either way that he has trouble connecting with women. Because of what happened with Magda. Yes, and I, I, I want to say, like, you, you raise an important point, which is that the love of Magneto's life is Xavier. Yes, and that's the really complicated thing. Because, you know, uh, yeah, I think he compares all women to Magda, but his relationship with Charles is something else. I think he considers everyone who he would view as both a peer, a worthy enemy, and someone who he, like, dearly wants as a comrade through the prism of his relationship to Xavier, who's all of those things for him. Right. Well, I think that's probably a good moment, since we're kind of getting into the weeds, to go into the Cerebro character file on Magneto. As we've sort of intimated already in this conversation, this is a character that's very tricky, much like Gene was last week, in that his history has been extensively retconned. He is a character without a history until the 80s. Then he gets this whole history added on that adds new context. 
His background was then retconned again with the Eric Lenzer stuff, like to say that he was Romani, but he's not. Then they unretconned it and he was Jewish again. Then it wasn't until Testament that we established everything. So basically, there's a lot of shit. There's also the fact that Grant Morrison tells a whole story about Magneto in their run that is immediately retconned to be not Magneto because Marvel clearly felt it was too much. So I'm going to give you the story as it was told, as best I can, and hopefully it won't be too hard to follow. And then we will return here for a little bit about our favorite Magneto storylines. And then so many of you wrote in really thoughtful questions for this episode, so we are going to have a long reader question segment. So with that, we will be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Eric Magnus Lenzer, born Max Eisenhart and best known as Magneto, master of magnetism, is the oldest and most prominent foe of the X-Men. A would-be conqueror introduced in September 1963's X-Men No. 1 by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, through the 60s and 70s he is the most iconic archenemy of the original team, especially after he forms the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Under writer Chris Claremont in the 1980s, the character was dramatically reimagined as a flawed but sympathetic anti-hero, Professor Xavier's former best friend and comrade, a survivor of the Holocaust, whose obsession with mutant sovereignty was born out of his trauma as a victim of genocide. Now the most prominent Jewish character in superhero comics, he has been the X-Men's ally as often as their enemy, and the equal and opposite pole to Charles Xavier in the political framework of the X-Universe. In his early appearances, as originally conceived, Magneto is frankly not that interesting a character. The X-Men's first mission is to stop him from seizing the military base at Cape Citadel, and he launches various schemes to prove the supremacy of mutants, whom he calls Homo Superior, over regular humans. There's more than a little bit of the concept of the Nazi Ubermensch in the way he talks about mutants in these stories, especially because it isn't until much later that mutation is made explicitly genetic and mutants become a stand-in for minority groups. For the most part, the character in the 60s is a bog-standard fascist. He assembles the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants to counter the X-Men, recruiting the sniveling Toad, the repellent Mastermind, and a pair of Romani twins, Pietro and Wanda Maximoff, called Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. He rescues the Maximoffs from a racist pogrom after Wanda is accused of sorcery. The twins are not mutant supremacists, but Wanda feels indebted to Magneto, and Pietro refuses to leave her side. In X-Men 11, Magneto is captured and taken into space for study by the omnipotent alien being called the Stranger. In his absence, Pietro and Wanda leave the Brotherhood to become superheroes as part of the Avengers, and the X-Men fight various other new threats like the Juggernaut and the mutant-hunting robots called the Sentinels. Though he escapes twice to cause trouble for the X-Men and for the Maximoff twins, Magneto remains the Stranger's prisoner for quite a while. By the time he finally gets away, in X-Men 43, he's dismayed to discover Professor Xavier has been killed by someone else. As Xavier's self-declared archenemy, he had wanted the honor. He captures the X-Men, but is betrayed by his minion Toad, who is tired of his constant abuse. Magneto apparently perishes when his island base explodes. In one of the final arcs of the original X-Men title, the Angel is killed by Pteranodons in the hidden prehistoric biome on Antarctica called the Savage Land. Don't worry about it. He's rescued by the Creator, an apparently kindly older man who reanimates him with high-tech machinery. The Creator leads the Savage Land Mutates, a group of primitive humanoids indigenous to the Savage Land whom he has artificially evolved into human mutants, 
He's actually Magneto, who lost his powers due to the injuries he sustained in the previous adventure. Angel's never seen Magneto without his helmet, and inadvertently helps him trap the X-Men and their ally Kazar. Marvel Girl manages to destroy his technology, reverting the mutates to their primitive state. Despairing, Magneto apparently kills himself. Three issues later, X-Men was cancelled and relegated to reprints. Over the years that followed, Magneto and his minions, whether the Brotherhood or restored Savage Land mutates, would appear as occasionally antagonists for other superheroes like the Fantastic Four and the Avengers. He manages to regain his superhuman powers by draining mutant energy from Angel, completing an experiment he had begun in the Savage Land. In a battle with the X-Men and the Defenders in Defenders 16, his quest to genetically engineer the ultimate mutant, a being called Alpha, backfires on him. Alpha becomes too wise to trust Magneto and uses his nigh-omnipotent power to regress his former master in age, turning Magneto into an infant. Apologizing to the Defenders, Alpha departs for outer space to explore the universe. Magneto next appears three years later, in 1977's X-Men 104 by Chris Claremont. Restored to adulthood by the Shi'ar agent Davan Shikari, a.k.a. Eric the Red, don't worry about it, Magneto lures the X-Men to Muir Island, where as a baby he had been entrusted to the care of Professor Xavier's ally, Dr. Moira McTaggart. He overpowers the new team of X-Men formed in his absence by Xavier, who got better, and forces them to flee or face defeat. In his next appearance, Magneto captures the X-Men and takes them to his base in Antarctica, where he uses a robot babysitter to brainwash them all to an infantile state so they can experience the helplessness he did while regressed to a baby. Don't worry about it. They escape, destroying Magneto's headquarters with lava, and he is once again apparently killed. Three years later, in 1981, he emerges with a new base in the Bermuda Triangle. In Uncanny X-Men 150, Magneto demands that all world leaders disarm their nuclear weapons and cede control of their nations to him, or he will end life on Earth. He has decided to become a benevolent dictator rather than a mutant tyrant, but his methods are still questionable. When the X-Men's newest member, Kitty Pride, disrupts his scheme by phasing through his machinery, destroying it, he's enraged and nearly kills her with an electrical blast. When he realizes she's a 13-year-old child, he is devastated. Grieving over the apparent corpse of the young girl, Magneto reveals that he is a survivor of the Holocaust whose family was massacred at Auschwitz. After the liberation of the camps, his daughter was murdered by humans, and his wife Magda fled when she saw him use his developing mutant powers to avenge their child. He realizes now that in his zeal to take power from mutants, he has lost sight of the very mutants he hoped to protect. It's worth noting that nowhere in this story is Magneto explicitly referred to as a Jew. Claremont would never make that point explicit in his 16 years on the X-Men, though he implied it frequently throughout his run. In 1982's Uncanny X-Men 161, a massive retcon establishes that Magneto and Professor Xavier are actually old friends. They met in Haifa, Israel some decades ago when Magneto, calling himself Magnus, was working in a psychiatric hospital as an orderly helping other Holocaust survivors. There he met Charles Xavier, who used his telepathic powers to restore the mind of a catatonic survivor named Gabrielle Haller. The three became close, and Magnus and Charles debated their views on mutant liberation. When the neo-Nazi organization Hydra kidnapped Gabrielle, Magnus helped Charles rescue her, but told his friend as they parted ways that he would never allow mutant kind to be meek or passive in defending itself against hatred. Magneto then crosses over to the Vision and Scarlet Witch miniseries and the Avengers, where it's revealed that unbeknownst to Magneto or to the Maximoff twins, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch are actually his long-lost children. Magda had been pregnant when she fled and gave birth to the twins under the watchful eye of the High Evolutionary on Mount Wondegore. She then died not long afterward. Meeting his human granddaughter Luna, Pietro's daughter with his wife Crystal, Magneto further reassesses his antagonism toward regular humans. Though his children still do not trust him, they hope his attempt at reform is genuine. 
This leads to a team up with the X-Men in Marvel graphic novel number five, God Loves, Man Kills, where they share a common enemy in the Reverend William Stryker, a human supremacist bigot who leads a group of mutant hunters called the Purifiers. Magneto encourages the X-Men to pursue Xavier's dream, as even if they disagree on methods, he believes their goals are in alignment. When he's among the superhumans kidnapped by the cosmic being the Beyonder in the company-wide event Secret Wars, the X-Men defend him to the other heroes, expressing their belief that he has changed. He ends up joining forces with the X-Men again during this conflict. When his headquarters in outer space, Asteroid M, he's got lots of bases, don't worry about it, is destroyed, Magneto falls to Earth and is rescued by ship's captain Lee Forrester, Cyclops' ex-girlfriend, who Magneto had met back in the Bermuda Triangle. Magneto and Lee end up banging it out for a bit, and she's a fun character, but you don't need to worry about it. The point is that this story further humanizes Magneto, even though he's reluctant to let Lee into his heart. Their relationship is interrupted by the return of the Beyonder. Charles Xavier summons Magneto telepathically, and he joins forces with the X-Men again in Secret Wars 2. In 1985's Uncanny X-Men 199 and 200, Magneto attends a Holocaust memorial event with Kitty Pride. A number of survivors of the event recognize him, telling Kitty he helped them survive in the camps. This reunion is interrupted by Mystique, Magneto's successor as leader of a new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, who has sold her team's services to the U.S. government in exchange for a pardon. Now called Freedom Force, the former Brotherhood apprehends Magneto and turns him over to the International Justice Court in Paris, where he's made to stand trial for his crimes against humanity. Acting as his defense attorney is Gabrielle Haller, the Holocaust survivor he and Xavier saved so many years ago in Haifa. On a technicality, Gabrielle convinces the court to throw out the crimes Magneto committed before he was regressed to infancy by Alpha, and Magneto then explains his subsequent motivations. The trial is attacked by the neo-Nazi terrorist Fenris, who fatally wound Xavier and sent him and Magneto floating down the River Seine. Dying, Charles makes Magnus promise to take over his role as an educator to the New Mutants, the new class of students at his school for gifted youngsters. Magnus agrees, and the two are interrupted—there's a lot of interruptions, have you noticed? by the arrival of the Starjammers, don't worry about it, who take Xavier away to Shi'ar space in order to save his life. Now posing as Michael Xavier, Charles's cousin, Magneto takes the role of headmaster at Xavier's, but finds the new mutants resistant to his leadership, especially after they're murdered and resurrected by the Beyonder, leaving them heavily traumatized. After some initial misunderstandings and a battle with the Avengers, Magneto joins forces with the Hellfire Club's telepathic White Queen, Emma Frost, to heal the New Mutants' minds as Xavier once did for Gabrielle Haller. This leads to a truce with the Hellfire Club and its inner circle, which eventually invites Magneto to join as their new White King. He declines, despite a steady rise in human mutant tensions, but reconsiders after the 1986 event Mutant Massacre, in which a group called the Marauders butcher the subterranean mutant community called the Morlocks. The slaughter reminds Magneto of Auschwitz, and after he coordinates relief efforts with the X-Men from the mansion, he decides to accept the role of White King, to be shared with Storm, leader of the X-Men, in a gesture of goodwill. There's an Avengers vs. X-Men story in here you don't have to worry about, where Magneto goes to trial again, and Gabrielle Haller defends him again, and nothing particularly new happens. But there are also two classic X-Men backups which further expand on his retconned origin story. The first, in Classic X-Men 12, portrays the story of his life with Magda and the death of their daughter Anya. The second, Classic X-Men 19, is set some time later, not long before Magnus meets Charles Xavier in Haifa, and portrays him operating as a Nazi hunter on behalf of the United States government, until he oversteps his bounds, capturing a Nazi who was now aligned with America as part of Operation Paperclip. When his government handlers punish him for this error by murdering his friend Isabel, Magneto loses all faith in humankind and is set on the road to mutant supremacist terrorism. In the 1988 event Fall of the Mutants, Cypher, one of the New Mutants, is killed on a mission. 
Magneto is devastated and refuses to let his other students join the X-Men in fighting the being called the Adversary in Dallas. When the X-Men are apparently killed in that battle, the New Mutants are outraged that they weren't allowed to help. The death of the X-Men also threatens Magneto's position in the Hellfire Club, and he begins spending more time there in a power struggle with Black King Sebastian Shaw, eventually deposing him and becoming Grey King of both the Black and White factions of the club. The New Mutants begin to distrust him, and after the 1989 event Inferno, they reject him in Xavier's school entirely. Magneto returns to villainy, explaining to Moira McTaggart that he wants to distract anti-mutant bigots from the innocent. There's some Avengers stuff with Wanda and Pietro, and then he apparently dies. Again. In Uncanny X-Men 269, it turns out he just went back to the Savage Land, where the X-Man Rogue, temporarily powerless, crash lands after traveling through the mystical gateway called the Siege Perilous. Don't worry about it. Magneto rescues her from a zombie version of the Avenger Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers. Don't worry about it, we'll cover it next episode. And the two feel a strong sexual attraction. Since Rogue is able to touch for the first time since her adolescence, now that her powers are disrupted, the two begin an affair. But Rogue leaves him after she witnesses him murder the evil sorceress Zaladane, who's maybe another one of his long-lost children. It's complicated. Retiring to his space headquarters on Asteroid M, tired of all this shit, Magneto is surprised by the arrival of the Acolytes, a group led by Fabian Cortez that has devoted itself almost religiously to Magneto's philosophy. Accepting the Acolytes as his new followers, even though they're a bit more extreme than he'd like, Magneto is horrified when they heal him after a battle and discover a genetic anomaly in his DNA. Kidnapping Charles and Moira, he gets Moira to admit that she experimented on him while caring for him as a regressed infant. Believing her genetic tampering has brainwashed him, Magneto questions all the decisions he made since Uncanny X-Men 150 and attacks the X-Men. Moira eventually explains that her experiment had failed, and Magneto's mind was always his own. Betrayed by Fabian Cortez, who sets Astrid M to self-destruct, Magneto refuses to leave with the X-Men and is apparently killed, again, in the blast. After this story in 1991, Chris Claremont was fired from the X-Men books due to conflict with editorial. Over the ensuing years, there are some strange details established by other writers about Magneto. First, he's given the real name Eric Magnus Lenzhau, and is revealed not to be a Jew at all, despite Claremont's many very heavy implications, but rather a Sinti Romani like his late wife Magda. Marvel editorial was concerned, now that Magneto was a villain again, at their urging, about the optics of their most prominent Jewish character being a supervillain. Apparently they didn't think Romani people merited the same consideration, which is not great. This was all retconned out a few years later, with the Israeli government revealing the Eric Lenzer identity as a forgery. Magneto's Jewish identity would not be made explicitly textual, though, outside of the Fox X-Men film franchise, until 2008's Magneto Testament by Greg Pak, which gives his birth name as Max Eisenhart. The 90s Magneto stories mostly involve him leading the Acolytes, fighting rogue Acolytes led by Cortez, and dealing with Joseph, a sexy young clone someone made of him. You truly do not need to worry about this. There's also Onslaught, where his consciousness merges with Professor Xavier's to become a psychic being called onslaught but onslaught is very silly and i'm just not going to get into it eventually magneto is revealed to be one of the 12 a group of mutants prophesied to defeat the immortal mutant apocalypse but the whole thing is a shaggy dog story that isn't really important what is important is the aftermath where magneto takes leadership of the island nation of genosha formerly an anti-mutant apartheid state genosha becomes a haven for mutant kind magneto is accompanied by his son quicksilver and lorna dane the mutant heroine polaris a woman with the same powers as Magneto, who was once tricked into believing she was his daughter back in the 60s by a robot Magneto, don't worry about it, and his leadership is recognized by the United Nations as he attempts to regain the international community's trust. 
Within six months, his darker impulses tempered by Pietro and Lorna, he has turned Genosha into a flourishing mutant homeland. In the 2001 franchise-wide event Eve of Destruction, Magneto does some evil stuff again because, I don't know, sometimes they just really want Magneto to be evil. Wolverine nearly kills him and he's left incapacitated, which throws Genosha into chaos, just in time for E is for Extinction, the first arc of writer Grant Morrison's relaunch, New X-Men. In this story, the new villain Cassandra Nova deploys a new evolving fleet of sentinels on Genosha, massacring nearly every soul on the island and killing 16 million mutants, the vast majority of the world's mutant population. This genocide, which dwarfs the Holocaust that spurred him to action, apparently counts Magneto among its victims. One of the only survivors is Polaris, who suffers a psychotic break and broadcasts the dying thoughts of the Genosian population, which Magneto had managed to save as magnetic electrical signals. She reveals to the X-Men as she recovers that she had discovered Magneto was in fact her biological father, only to lose him to the genocide before they could discuss it. After his apparent death, Magneto becomes a counterculture hero to young mutants, with the slogan Magneto was right emblazoned on t-shirts and his name coming to signify radical mutant activism. In the penultimate arc of New X-Men, Planet X, it's revealed that Magneto actually survived. He has been posing as the new character Zorn, a teacher at Xavier's who must wear a fully obscuring helmet at all times due to his supposedly volatile mutant power. In the guise of Zorn, Magneto has manipulated Xavier's younger students, grooming them into a new brotherhood. Addicted to Kick, a power-boosting drug that ravages the brain, Magneto fully loses his mind and takes over New York City, beginning a systematic extermination of the regular humans there. He's defeated by the X-Men, but uses his boosted power to murder Jean Grey. He is then in turn executed by Wolverine. In the final arc, Here Comes Tomorrow, it's revealed that Kick is an aerosolized version of the ancient bacteria Sublime, and that by the end of his life, Magneto was fully under the influence of this evil entity. Morrison simply hadn't bought Magneto's heroic turns over the years and felt the character was always at core a fascist. Planet X was meant to be the final Magneto story, but Marvel Editorial had pushed back against it, and after Morrison's departure from the franchise in 2004, they retconned the story out within months. Zorn is revealed to have been an imposter, and Magneto is revealed to be alive and well, helping Xavier rebuild Genosha. Later attempts to rationalize this retcon were pretty weak, and the ultimate hand wave is that the Scarlet Witch altered reality at some point. It's the editorial equivalent of don't worry about it. In the 2005 company-wide event House of M, the Scarlet Witch has completely lost her mind and creates a new reality where Magneto rules the Earth and mutants reign supreme. After this reality breaks down, Wanda decides mutants are fundamentally dangerous and bad, and tries to use her reality-warping powers to eradicate mutant kind from the planet. She doesn't fully succeed, but what results is the decimation, in which only about 200 mutants on Earth remain empowered and the rest are turned into regular humans. Magneto is one of the mutants to lose his powers, but he's quickly powered back up again by an entity called the Collective, which is partially Zorn, and is a big don't worry about it. After this, Magneto lays low for a bit before turning up on Utopia, the new refuge of the decimated mutant population led by Cyclops and Emma Frost. He bends the knee to Cyclops and is accepted despite Xavier's objections. To win the trust of the X-Men, he uses his powers to save Kitty Pride from space, where she'd spent a few years phased to a giant bullet. Do not worry about it. He earns the trust of the public when he uses his powers to prevent disaster during a massive earthquake in San Francisco. Then his clone Joseph turns up again and frames him for various crimes, which is a little silly because Joseph wasn't evil back in the 90s, but whatever, and then Avengers vs. X-Men happens. Possessed by the Phoenix Force, Cyclops murders Professor Xavier, and everything basically goes to shit. On the upside, the Phoenix manages to partially undo the decimation, and mutant powers begin to manifest again in new mutants, though the decimated mutants remain depowered. 
For the next several years, Magneto goes on the run with Cyclops and Emma as fugitives, and they become radical mutant activists to find and train the mutants who are now awakening. His role as Cyclops' new mentor makes the time-traveling teen 60s X-Men, it's complicated, listen to some of the previous episodes I've already done, struggle to trust Cyclops, but ultimately they come around. In 2014, there's a company-wide event called Axis that is, yes, about as tacky as it sounds in places, and we don't really have to get into it. The important thing is that it turns out Wanda and Pietro aren't actually Magneto's kids, which is incredibly stupid and probably happened because of movie rights disputes involving the characters. Then all the Inhumans vs. X-Men stuff happens, and you know the deal there already. We are gonna skip it. And that brings us to... The 2019 X-Men reboot Dawn of X by Jonathan Hickman, in which Magneto and Xavier, who got better, join forces with Emma and other mutant leaders to found a new sovereign mutant nation on the living island Krakoa. As one of the members of Krakoa's Quiet Council, Magneto is again a head of state, but this time has compromised his vision to some extent to create what he hopes will be a paradise for all mutants. Only time will tell if this new arrangement will hold, or if Eric Magnus Lenser will once again find himself drawn to violence and conquest. X-Men! X-Men! And we're back. Okay, so uh, that's been handled, which is a relief. It's one of the characters like Jean that I was quite daunted by the prospect of putting together that little dossier. You and Sarah did a great job on on the Jean Oh, thank you. I like it so much. Thank you. I was happy with it. But yeah, so now that the listeners who are newer to the X-Men have more of a backgrounding, it's always fun to sort of talk about our favorite storylines. My favorite period of Magneto is from that trial up through Inferno, essentially. I mean, I repeat myself always, like, oh, shocker, Connor's favorite period of this character is the 80s. Well, Kel surprise. But I love Magneto in his very uncomfortable role as headmaster at Xavier's school. I love that he does it because Xavier is dying and has to be transported to Shi'ar space and just begs him, you have to do it. And um, uh, if you're not seeing this, which you're not, Spencer is holding up New Mutants 35 right now and uh, just holding up various beautiful issues in plastic from that run. Yeah, that's a good one too. That's the Barry Windsor Smith New Mutants. That's 40. the one where Emma calls the Avengers on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, he's trying to kidnap my students. I love everything about it. I love that he's like, that he would only ever do this for Charles. And he is reeling from his sort of understanding that his mission has failed, that he has failed as a project. And he decides, all right, I will do this for you because maybe you were right all along. And he tries his best. And Claremont said recently in his AMA on Reddit that like, you know, Charles wasn't as interesting to him because Charles was sort of above reproach in a lot of ways in terms of how the character was constructed, which I don't quite agree with. But he was more saying he found Magneto to be more interesting as a character because he was a bad man trying desperately to be good in that period. And that he loved the way that that interacted with Ilyana's storyline because she was someone who was fundamentally at core evil. I mean, she had sold her soul but who was also trying to be a good person despite that, and that they would always sort of butt heads. My favorite thing that I had forgotten about until I was rereading some of that stuff recently because of this podcast is that when he takes over the school, 
he establishes another false identity, which is Michael Xavier, yes. Charles's cousin. And first of all, that's just really funny. Like, hi, it's me, Michael Xavier. And everyone's like, that's Magneto. That's just Magneto. But also, I love that his cover identity is like, oh, we're cousins. Because it has a very, like, American dub of Sailor Moon quality to me, where, like, the lesbians were suddenly cousins. Like, that explains why they're so close. They're cousins. But it, all it really did was communicate to the viewer that these cousins are a little too close. It seems a little weird. Reading it back as an adult, it occurred to me that, like, this was a way that, like, Xavier and Magneto could be married. Yes, that's exactly it. Is It's like now he takes the name Xavier. He takes the name Xavier and takes over the school. And it's unbelievably gay. It's super fun. He's in charge of the kids now. And he starts wearing this new outfit that is fabulous. <laughs> First, he wears the trial outfit with his titties out. I mean, that outfit <laughs> is a little bit... Like, the John Romita That is an incredible there. outfit. Yeah, and it's just like his pecs are just like bulging out the sides. He has like side boob going on. It really undermines my Magneto is not a horny character argument. I'm just putting that out there. But no, but then he sort of, his new outfit as headmaster is kind of like, it's sort of Vincent Price-esque. It's like very flamboyant, but in a fun way. And he is just like doing his thing, trying to control these kids. And he's never been good with children. I identify with Magneto placed in charge of children because I'm very bad with children. And I think similarly, I would be a very confused flamboyant man in a cape trying to control the new mutants. I don't think I would be very good at it. The last thing a new parent should be confronted with is a teenager. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> and it's like, in particular, it's like Danny Moonstar yeah. and Ilyana Rasputina who are extremely difficult teenagers in terms of following instructions or listening to the headmaster or what have you. And, by the way, they were all in another dimension when this happens. So they just come home and suddenly dad's boyfriend who's evil is in charge of the school and dad is gone for who knows how long. And to add to that, and this is the like the, the immediate like trauma that they confront, the new mutants have just died. Yes. And they don't know how to deal with that. And Magneto... They're all catatonic because they died and were resurrected. And Magneto, they're having like dreams about this so powerful that Magneto, who from being around his husband for so long, has picked up like a little bit of telepathy, can feel them. And it's disturbing his own sleep, which will always be disturbed as well, to the point where he has to go to Emma Frost. Yes. And say, like, can you take these kids? Like, can I don't you know help? what I'm doing. Can you take like, the children? I don't really know what I'm doing here. Now, in part, it's because Empath encourages him right. to take that course of action. And then he realizes Empath has been manipulating him, so he goes to try and get them back. And that's when Emma calls the Avengers yes. something, which is very, very funny. And it's a whole thing. It's the only time Emma Frost has ever called the Avengers. Usually she's the one like, get out of here, Carol. No, it's Enough of you. It's, it's really like, at that point, if you're calling the Avengers, like, you want to kill Magneto. Yeah, no, she's like, he's got to go. Unfortunate. <laughs> you know? But then they end up realizing that they both are more genuine and more heroic at their core than you might have been led to believe based on all the evil shit they've done. Like, their drive when it comes to mutant kind is not inherently selfish. They both want to help these children. And it's what creates the truce between the X-Men and the Hellfire Club. 
which is the status quo for a very long time until things get wonky again in the 90s. But it takes Emma being put in a coma and Mm -hmm. Shinobi taking over and all of that stuff for the Hellfire Club to become antagonists again in that way. Well, one of the things I also love about that stretch of his character development is that he takes it so incredibly seriously. And as a parent, you can really recognize the kinds of anxiety dreams that Claremont has Magneto narrating, Mm -hmm. where he can't help these kids. The life that Charles has set out for them is, you know, potentially fatal. It kills Doug. Yeah. He's the one who has to deal with that, which I think is important. And and he's devastated when that happens. Like, yeah. he, the whole reason he starts kind of back on the road to villainy is that he fails at the task so utterly that he, like, seeks out a self-imposed exile. And, like, it's, you know, Magneto's lot in life to never get to do that, kind of like the Incredible Hulk. But that era of Magneto is central to his character. I don't know. I have trouble with the jump from there to 91. Like, the way he veers so far out there is hit me. Yeah. I mean, it was editorially mandated, right? So there's that. But in terms of the character himself, what's your your take on it? So I really love those issues, despite my issues with them. Clearly, you know, you are not alone in viewing that character trajectory as kind of abrupt but claremont claremont certainly thought so (laughs) but i have to tell you in in recently rereading it claremont pulls it off really well well that's like maddie Pryor. he makes it work even if he's not happy about it like in particular in these issues which just look gorgeous because it's it's jim lee at my favorite period of jim lee claremont has magneto feeling the guilt of this so enormously and viewing it all as a continuum with how his life has gotten him to a point where he shows weakness and he views all of his failures as a sign of weakness that mutant kind can't afford and you start to see the gears turning in his mind remember that this is a deeply traumatized person so Like, he is not really thinking outside of this cycle of pain that his life revolves around and his life is is going to be caught in. And that's what gets him. And then finally, there's um, a very poignant betrayal that happens in the story. They're basically like, they have to, along with S.H.I.E.L.D., take out Zaladane because Zaladane is pulling off a very Magneto-y caper. I love Zaladane. Zaladane, Magneto's lost daughter that will never understand what the hell that was supposed to be about, but she's a lot of fun. So the whole thing is like thematically on mission because like no Magneto, no Zaladane. This is a very like Magneto in the Lee Kirby era, you know, caper to like reorient the magnetic positioning of the planet. Well, and it's back to the Savage That's right. Which of course is that place where Magneto becomes kind of complicated for the first time. Where he really goes awry. And he's dealing with all of this. It's all like flashing in front of his eyes, like all of his compounding failures. And then finally, the Russian, the Soviet attache to S.H.I.E.L.D. like has an opportunity to kill him and takes it and fucks it up as vengeance for sinking the Leningrad, this crime that Magneto (laughs) can never 
get away from the Leningrad yeah. was, of course, in Uncanny 150, the um, ballistic sub, the ballistic missile sub that shoots nukes at Magneto when Magneto tries to forcibly nuke, denuclearize the world. Yes. Um, and he's that's one of the charges that gets brought up uh, to him in, in, in the world court because he sinks the, the Leningrad with all hands, um, as well as this thing that clearly, like, they dialed back on editorial um, in 150, where he, like, destroys an entire Soviet city, but supposedly yeah. evacuated it first. Right, yeah. we we That's one where we just pretend that that... It's like how Wolverine kills the Hellfire Club guards, and then, like, 80 issues later... Like, they're they fine. They're, like, re- they're the Reavers. They're the Reavers, yeah. right, yeah. It's like, oh, no, they survived, and they got robot parts, and now they're evil cyborgs. And you're like, okay, sure. Uh, you know, but with like but with happen. this, like you don't believe, like particularly at that point in his character history, that Magneto would empty that town at all. They had just tried to nuke him. He's just gonna destroy yeah. that city. No, he's period. just gonna kill those people, right? And like clearly, they thought you know better of that when they saw it on the page and had to insert too much. Had right. to like, they were like, insert mm, a caption okay. like well, they got if, everyone out of there. If the plan is we're on a redemption journey now, yeah, you got it. it I think actually what that was is I think that. Claremont had learned the lesson of Dabari. Of Dark Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. And that there was only so far Shooter was going to let him push it morally. So I think that they ratchet that back a little bit. Because clearly, as Dark Phoenix illustrates, Claremont and Claremont and Byrne, when they worked together, were very interested in how far can we push this and still redeem the character. And the answer with Dark Phoenix was not genocide far. And that has always been the thing that breaks Magneto. As a character, you cannot have, like, the most important Holocaust survivor in comics. I'm not even sure if there are many, like, if there's really a, you know, a close second here. Well, there aren't that many Jewish characters in superhero comics in general, which is something that... Explicitly Jewish. Yes, there are lots of characters who I would say we claim like Peter Parker, but there are not that many characters who are explicitly on the page Jewish. So yeah, if you want to go to Survivors, I would say far and away, he's the only one that really breaks in comics. And like, this is also why the mutates thing is such a problem. The one thing you can't have Magneto do is act like a fucking Nazi. Yeah, I mean, the mutates thing is, I think is a little different because I don't know. It's too it's close like, to be comfortable for a character close. like It's too Magneto. close. It's too close. But that's before he was Jewish, so it's like... Right, but once you, you know, sort of write yourself into a you corner... You have to reconcile it, yeah. right. Like some... I, um... The thing... I mean, we might as well just address the big helmeted elephant in the room, which is the Magneto Planet X Morrison storyline. Because I imagine you would see that as something that breaks the character. Yes. And so did Marvel, obviously. Now... I am on record as really enjoying that story, but I enjoy it in the way that Morrison intended it, which was, this is the final Magneto story. The idea was, he has completely lost it. He has been compromised by, I mean, Here Comes Tomorrow reveals that the way that Sublime and Kick function, it was barely him piloting by that point, right? Because Sublime infests every cell and influences the body and corrupts your mind and eats it. But the point is that Magneto is so completely full of shit and has so fully lost the plot that he begins acting like a Nazi and that that is supposed to 
be the indicator to you that A, something is wrong with Magneto, and B, this guy's got to go. His justifications are no longer... And what Morrison was trying to do there was take Xavier and Magneto off the page. Be done with them. He felt that their ideas were old, that they were old men, and that they needed to leave. And I think as a story, it's very, very good. I think that if you want Magneto to be a character who continues to exist, then it has to go, which is, of course, the calculus they made approximately one month later <laughs> when they had Claremont write the book bizarrely named Excalibur about rebuilding Genosha, where the first issue, it's like, oh, that wasn't Magneto. Don't worry about it. And I don't know. I really love Planet X, but I also understand why... Grant Morrison, a non-Jewish writer writing that story, torqued off a lot of people because Magneto does usher humans into crematoriums in that story. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm, I, I'd be interested in your take on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I love their run. I think, you know, the Morrison run is is rightly up there, you know, with Claremont and with, I guess, what we're just calling, should we call it the Hickman era or should we call it like... Krakoa era. Let's do Krakoa era because so many people are making it what it yeah, is. Yeah, but I don't think they mind acknowledging Jonathan Hickman as sort of the architect. But, I, you know, I, I sort of use them interchangeably, Hickman era, Krakoa era. But yeah, there's a lot more cooks in the kitchen than there were in either the Morrison or Claremont era. For, for sure. The only thing that I can't get behind in Morrison is what he does with Magneto. I just, you know, we're not really disagreeing when we say it's a character-breaking story and it's the last Magneto yeah. story like it's supposed to break the character wants to break right. the character and I'm very invested in that character being unbroken totally fair listen I said this on the Emma Frost episode I cannot countenance Inhumans versus X-Men which has a very similar yeah. point which is Emma uses Sentinels to kill children and that is the most un-Emma thing she could possibly do and that's supposed to indicate to you oh Emma has lost her mind I don't think that that story earned it and I'm invested in that character continuing, and I thought it broke the character. And they've just chosen to pretend it never happened. Planet X kills him at the end. I mean, the idea was, it's over. There isn't a Magneto that continues. It's done. He's dead. It's over. And he failed. Catastrophically, in every way he possibly could have failed. I think that the story earns it because I think that the twist is done so well. I think the story does not earn it because it has nothing to say in communication and accordingly resolution with the Jewish character that Magneto became. Well, that's the one thing that's missing is yes. And I do think that that's the difference between Morrison writing about Magneto and Claremont writing about Magneto because they're both responding to the 60s stories, yes, right? Definitely. That's what they're both doing. And that's what Grant Morrison is best at. Better than anyone yes, else in college. Sure. And like I said, I love that run. It is justly celebrated. It is justly seminal. This is my one problem with it. But yeah. this is the most controversial part of it. And I do think that what is difficult about it is that Morrison is not interested in the Jewish element there. To them, it's not the point of the character in the way that for you or for me to some extent, that is the point of the character. Yeah. What Morrison's doing is saying, what is all of this, like, redemptive Magneto nonsense? Like, Magneto is a fascist lunatic. Look at all of these old issues. This doesn't make sense. 
Xavier wanted to turn Magneto into someone redeemable because they know each other and, you know, they love each other, but Magneto is evil. And that's what Morrison then takes to an extreme by having Kick and Sublime amplify everything that's the worst qualities about Magneto to the point where his ideology completely falls apart. But outside of the very provocative Holocaust imagery that is used in Planet X, it's not that concerned with that question. And I think that's the one failing of it as a steward, really, because I don't have a strong objection to the rest of it. I've come around to the idea that the only way you can really enjoy superhero comics as someone who's a longtime reader or fan is to discreetly meet out eras and consider them to be stories that have beginnings, middles, and ends. You can do that with Claremont. Luckily, Morrison's story has a firm, mm-hmm. definitive beginning, middle, and end. In the context of Morrison's run, Zorn is Magneto. And I think that story is brilliant. In the context of the X-Men has to now continue, I think there was no choice because it doesn't it doesn't allow for a future. For the character if he did those things i think there is another there's a path not taken with the beginning of of morrison's run which is that you could say if you don't do planet x that like magneto's story resolves itself by finding the inner peace that we initially associate with zorn and have it be a really poignant story about healing mm-hmm. from trauma and deciding that, you know, perhaps your time is your your time is done and it's better to live. The thing that I that I do love initially before we get to Planet X is that Morrison understands, like really intuitively, the power of Magneto as a revolutionary symbol. Yes. And to be able to contrast that with, you know, perhaps a version of Magneto Zorn where Magneto decides like he's going to wear a different helmet from now on because he has achieved this very hard fought inner peace and resolution, the resolution of which has like geopolitical consequences because of the life that Magneto has led. Like that was an option. It was. It's just not the story Morrison was interested in telling. The story Morrison was interested in telling was about how millennials in particular, but really all people who come after and who don't remember atrocities tend to elevate revolutionaries and political figures into like fashionable symbols the whole magneto is right thing it's like no your idea of who magneto is was right the actual magneto is this guy from the 60s and i think that it is important to remember that morrison's parents were anti-nuclear activists and that morrison's work is often really preoccupied with the question of the bomb and who is willing to use it. And I think that for Morrison, yes, later, when Claremont is interested in redeeming the character, there's a whole denuclearization thing that Magneto is interested in. But in the 60s, Magneto wants to seize nuclear weapons and use them on people. I think that for Morrison, it was an attempt to say, wake up for a second, the real person you're talking about, if you look at the full character's history, is not someone you should be putting on a t-shirt. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do think that is why the story is what it is. I just want to say, uh, in defense of Magneto, 
Magneto never uses the nuclear fucking weapons. Magneto has nuclear weapons used against him. Right, but he wants to use them. <laughs> if you go no, back. I don't... <laughs> I don't think he does. I'm going to make. I'm going to be tank. I'm going to be Magneto tanky for a moment. Okay, sure, hit me. Like we said earlier, Magneto does not accept a world in which, if we decide we're going to live in a world in which single people and single apparatuses or even single regimes have the power to end life on Earth, that he's not going to be one of the people in that conversation. Because he recognizes that not being in that conversation means the guaranteed extermination of mutant kind. We live in a world in which Magneto's life is very much more than the X-Men's is. About saving mutants who are being vivisected. Oh yeah. Right? Magneto is a liberator. We will always have to, I believe, judge the question of Magneto's willingness to actually use these weapons as opposed to using them as the deterrent. That he loudly sure. states. Sure, I, I just, I'm talking about, though, if you go back to the 60s stories where he has nefarious thought bubbles. Yeah. Uh, you know, what you're talking about is the way we have rationalized those stories with the greater context that Claremont brings to the character. And I think that for Morrison, it doesn't hold together. And that was the project. I agree. To some degree, Morrison and I are just going to be talking past one another. That's what I'm saying, because yeah. you're looking for something different in the character. Yeah. That's all I was trying to articulate. It's a complicated story. I get why it really bugs some people. I think it's probably for the best that they retconned it, but it bums me out because I think it's so good. <laughs> but I get it because, listen, it was all for the best because the Magneto now is, I think, the best Magneto's been since the 80s. So it's very exciting to have the character doing his thing and have Krakoa be the best possible version of himself. Like it, it is validating if you have followed him on his long journey to see him reach this, not perfect, but as good a Magneto as Magneto can be essentially is really rewarding. And I am glad we've arrived here. Well, you know, perhaps the irony is that Morrison views Magneto as wrong. And yet he's the last writer right. in X history to take that position from all of what comes after. I guess Whedon is agnostic on this, but the portrayal after Planet X that's existed for, you know, 20 years and now is, you know, completely ascendant on Krakoa is that although Morrison meant it in this ironic way to call attention to the hollowness of it, they nevertheless like coalesce indelibly this you know slogan that magneto was in fact right and that lives on past morrison ultimately loses right morrison does lose the argument because the writers that come after decide actually magneto was right and that leads into a reader question which i think is worth touching on dan pinsk writes hi connor and connor's lovely guest how do you feel about the phrase magneto was right and it's almost mimetic usage these days as a queer non-binary Jew, I admit I often think of it as an anti-assimilationist rallying cry for marginalized people, but his history as a villain certainly complicates this reading. Is Magneto right? Does it matter? Should I get a tattoo of this phrase with his iconic helmet? Thanks. Love the podcast. First of all, that tattoo sounds great. I'm pro. So it's a complicated question because I think Magneto was right. <laughs> 
And as Spencer was indicating, and I think this is true, every writer to follow Morrison, for the most part, takes the position that Magneto is right. In the X office, the weirdest thing about the whole schism into Avengers versus X-Men era is, and I don't know how much of this is editorial or whatever, but the positioning of Cyclops as wrong and wrong because he has aligned himself with Magneto's philosophy. I think what's interesting is that after Avengers versus X-Men, which is sort of the ultimate, like, ooh, bad Cyclops, like, how dare you? Bendis takes over, and Bendis, who is also Jewish, seems very much of the opinion that Magneto is right. <laughs> and very quickly, I think, makes Cyclops' position the correct one. And so it's a complicated question. I think that the mimetic usage of it is exactly what you describe. I also think that's what Morrison was critiquing, is the way that we elevate iconoclastic people and turn them into symbols that don't address the complexities of those people. I've mentioned this before. I really have trouble with the character of Quentin Quire <laughs> as a character who continues to exist <laughs> because Morrison did something very specific with that character. Quentin Quire is an idiot who is completely full of shit. And Quentin Quire's Magneto was right sloganeering is completely shallow and hollow and is all aesthetics and has no weight to it. And the character as he's been reimagined is sort of like a genuine countercultural kind of character, which I think is very different from the way he was conceived and written in the Morrison run. But I think that that's reflective of the way readers reacted to the premise, which is like, okay, I get what you're saying, but also Magneto was right. And so we all kind of joined the Omega gang. So a lot there. One thing quickly about Quentin Quire is like, I agree with you about him. One of the things that I like so much about young Cable in Krakoa is that he's like getting to play the kind of role that writers since Morrison with, have used Quentin Quire to play with. Yeah, who doesn't fit it, in my opinion. Baby Cable is way better suited. Yeah, like Morrison's Quentin Quire is basically like a Milo Yiannopoulos character. Right? He's a fucked up troll whose, like, addiction to, like, provocation is supposed to provide, like, a completely uncompelling uh, inoculation against the noxious shit that he actually believes. And, like, no one, no one is fooled by this. Yeah. Like, just, yeah, I agree with you. I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't, I don't like Quentin Quire. Yeah, and I think Morrison's Quentin Quire is very prescient. Yes. And predicts a lot of the alt-right millennial and Gen Z thing. And so I'm like, I'm just endlessly perplexed by the character we now are calling Quentin Quire, who I'm subjected to regularly now. I understand that it's sort of like what we were talking about with Magneto. The question is, are you willing to allow characters to evolve to a point where the earlier stories don't necessarily jive with the new characterization. And that's just a, a question for individual Yeah, readers. and like, while Morrison is by far the best to have ever do it, a problem that I do have sometimes with what they often do with Golden and Silver Age stuff is, is just 
kind of commit too much to literalism. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. You know, when I say Magneto is right, first of all, no human being on Earth is right about everything. That's the thing, yes. So let's consider what we mean by saying Magneto is right in that context. Like we've said before, Magneto does a lot of fucked up stuff. He's killed a lot of people. He, like, whatever you're defining the mutates as, he's really done a lot of it. In House of M, there's a quick scene where Kitty Pride is in a jet going over Genosha. And she looks at the remains of a nation of 16 million robbed from this earth and says, this is what they will always do to us. And Kitty is right. And if Kitty is right, then God damn it, Magneto was right. As long as you are willing to concede that the Marvel Universe is a place where mutants are vivisected, hunted, subject to extermination. Exactly. Yeah. As long as a nation like Genosha of the apartheid Genosha could exist, Magneto is right. As long as we recognize... As long as Sublime and his U-Men... Exactly. I mean, that that is the thing, is like, Morrison makes the most compelling argument for Magneto being right in John John Sublime. So... It's, it's, it's interesting. So, I mean, I just think, like, you know, you could four-move checkmate it and just say, like, well, with the Mora X retcon, we have a definitive answer to this, and that's done. The one thing that I think against that reasoning, even though it leads to where I want to ultimately go with Magneto being right, is that, you know, in many ways, the importance of the X-Men... As a, as a universe of stories, as a mythos, is that we should always be debating who's right. I don't think right. that it's, you know, satisfying intellectually to retreat to, like, what, you know, we definitely have. I'm not criticizing the story at all. I absolutely love Hoxbox. You know this. Yeah. That, like, because Moira has lived these lives where she knows the outcome, we and we know the kind of regime that they decide they need to put together to forestall that outcome, is like 75% Magnetist. Yeah. Then, like, that's the game. Um, But I do like that, you know, at the least, there's 25% of what Magneto is not getting when they decide to show what, you know, the reign of X will be. Yeah, I think that the Krakoa situation, especially leading out of Ten of Swords, where Scott and Jean have said... We don't care what Charles and Eric say, we're going to have X-Men, and we're going to not always listen to the council, and yada yada, and wherever that's going is going to be interesting. But just in general, the idea of, you know, outside of Magneto Dark Seduction and a couple other little <laughs> things, we never really saw Magneto in charge of Genosha in a long-term sense that was very in-depth. Great point. I think that Magneto as a statesman is really interesting, and that leads into a question from Eric Tarnowski, who writes, Hello, Cerebro. Like our magnificent master of magnetism, my name is Eric. I'm a history teacher from the Midwest who's taught about the Holocaust using supplemental material from Marvel Comics like Magneto Testament. Magneto's always been a personal favorite, so I couldn't pass up the opportunity to weigh in. I particularly enjoy storylines that show Magneto as a political leader or mentor figure rather than a villain or conqueror. The Ben-Gurion begin parallels of Xavier and Magneto as heads of state rather than simply ideological foils have had a chance to be at the forefront with storylines involving Magneto's Genosha and more recently with the Quiet Council on Krakoa. 
The influx of the mutant population of Arako at the end of Ten of Swords sets up a significant portion of the population that, while sharing certain cultural through lines, is very clearly distinct from the mutants of Krakoa. The Iraqi that we saw in the crossover already displayed a bit of disdain for the Krakoans, which could grow into a rift between the factions. This aligns Krakoa with the Israeli-Palestinian situation better than before, and presents the X-Cast with an interesting set of circumstances to deal with going forward. My question is this, how do you think Magneto, and to an extent, the rest of the Council, will react to this new population? Will we see him advocate for these new mutants, or will he be predisposed for putting Krakoa and Krakoans first? Magneto has largely been tolerant of all mutants, but things could very easily go south because of the sheer amount of differences between the Krakoan mutants and the Iraqi. Any insight or expounding on Magneto the Elder Statesman is appreciated. Hanukkah Samayak, Eric from Indiana. Well, thank you for writing in, Eric. That was very thoughtful, comprehensive. I'll let Spencer go off in a second, but to answer you real quickly myself, I think that there are a lot of problems that the Iraqi present that are going to be really fascinating. First of all, they outnumber the Krakoans by a lot. They also have been removed from Earth for 4,000 years, right? So there's just a lot of culture shock there. Telepathically, you can probably teach them all English and things like that, but it's going to be tricky. And I think that that will be very interesting as we go forward to explore, because there are so many things we could do with that. Um, I'm not sure I agree that it coincides well with the Israeli-Palestinian thing any more than Krakoa did initially, because the Iraqi are not being displaced, right? Like the big issue with Krakoa as Israel and reading it that way is that Krakoa did not displace an existing population to move the mutants in. The one thing that could be said is that the Iraqi are indigenous to Okara before it was split, and this new population has come as sort of Johnny-come-latelys to Krakoa. But in terms of the ethnic allegory here, they're all Jews. You know what I'm saying? It would be like, it's a fantasy premise. It's like if we established a Jewish state and then millions of Jews who had been shunted into another dimension before the temple was destroyed popped up in the present. Yeah. Um, so Eric, Hawks of Math as well. Um, we specifically talked about uh, the, the problems of viewing Krakoa's Israel in the beast episode. So I don't want to repeat that too much. Go back to that. It's a good episode. Yeah, like the Iraqi like can't be Palestinians for the reason several reasons that that Connor elucidates. I guess you would view them as you know if you're determined uh, to map Israel onto Krakoa that like this is like an influx of of the Sephardic Jews or this is Falasha from Ethiopia or you know I guess if you wanted to go even further out in terms of it being a little bit tendentious, uh, you know Soviet Jewry coming in under Jackson Vanek to Israel. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that works. Um, this is why they need you to write that Sabret mini. <laughs> we, need, we need the Spencer Ackerman Sabret mini. Well, I would say, you know, because you bring up the, the parallels often cited between Xavier and Magneto and Ben-Gurion and Menachem Begin, I've been thinking about this since, you know, we did that episode and discussed it. And I've just found it increasingly a dissatisfying parallel. First, because it kind of proves too much. If you are determined to map 
Xavier and Magneto as a spectrum of political thought onto Zionism, then of course Magneto is going to map right. onto, you know, the more ruthless and unapologetic and violent version of that. But like, even when you view them, you know, as something to be said about, you know, how they rule um, as, as statesmen rather than as ideological antipodes, there's still nothing about Xavier's project that maps onto David Ben-Gurion's. Just nothing at all. Like, they're, they're, they're engaged in very, very different things. What I find interesting about it is more what it says about Chris Claremont and Chris Claremont's relationship to the question of Zionism and to the question of Jewish identity. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know if Chris Claremont identifies as a Zionist. I'm just saying that it feels like, to him... That is the political spectrum, right, of Jewish thought. Like, it, it, there mm -hmm. isn't even a consideration to, it's like, are you a left-wing Zionist or a right-wing Zionist? So there's no consideration to a leftist perspective that is anti-Zionist. That's right. not even in the arena, you know? And I think that that's a place where Claremont's Zionism allegory falls down a little, and it's something we've identified is a little odd about Krakoa, that there are no... Real, there's no sizable contingent of mutants opposed to this project, which is something I think we'll probably see more of as it goes. I mean, we're already starting to see fault lines, but... Yeah, I, you know, just to speak to that for a moment, if you're determined to map Israel onto Krakoa, then the real irony is that the figure Magneto best maps onto is Yasser Arafat. Ooh, hot take. Yeah, I mean, let's just be real. Hot take, but I like it. I have to think about yeah, it. Yeah, like let it. me make let me make the case. Um, and you know, I'm hoping that this whole discussion can become like a Jewish current symposium on Magneto and and what he represents in Jewish culture. Let's get a minion together and do a Jewish current roundtable. But here is Magneto waging a purely liberationist struggle from the perspective of needing to be liberated, not fulfilling a national project, however much that national project is believed to be a liberationist project. And most national projects see themselves as, as inherently liberationist. The point being, Magneto, in the position that he is in relative to the actual power structures that both he confronts and that makes him who he is, are more neatly circumstances that Yasser Arafat and Palestinian militant leaders find themselves in rather than Israeli military and, and political figures. Magneto is not in a position of dispossessing anyone. He is in a position of redefining the world's power dynamics. And so accordingly, you have to view this as something that looks more like the Palestinian struggle against Israel then it looks like, in terms of a Magnetist project, any Israeli struggle against the outside world. Certainly, it doesn't map onto any, var any, any variant of the Arab-Israeli struggle uh, that, that, right. that, that I can think of. And I think you kind of have to go with, you know, viewing Magneto on the terms that uh, we see if you want to attempt a synthesis between, you know, the Lee Kirby... Magneto and the, the Claremont and everything after, you know, with the exception of what Morrison does, Magneto, 
he looks more like Arafat than he looks like any Israeli founding figure. And Magneto was right. <laughs> well, I think we'll leave it at that. I think the thing that we have to say, if we're you know going to have an episode like this, is that as Jewish people, we stand in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle. Oh, cer- I certainly do. And I just want to make that explicit on a, on, on a discussion like this. I'm with you on that. I think it's important for us to say that, especially when we're Maccabeeing it up here <laughs> on Hanukkah. Brian Rail, Rahil, Rahil, I'm sorry, writes, I tried, I tried. Hi, Connor, and honored guest. I want to start off by saying that as one of your flat scan listeners, your podcast has really done more than just telling people about the wonderfully complicated soap opera that is the X-Men. It's great to hear voices I haven't heard speak on such topics, and has encouraged me to actively seek out more like them. Your podcast definitely has a positive social impact. Love hearing who you and your guests think should bang who. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I enjoy those speculations as well. My question this week regards Magneto. I'm sure you all will go over the background regarding his faith extensively, but my question regards his recent appearances as someone of the Jewish faith in the Dawn of X era. In House of X 1, we get the now famous line, you have new gods now, to the human delegation in Israel. Obviously, this is meant as a message in multiple different levels, given the location of the Holy Land, but it feels even more important or notable that it's Magneto who's giving the speech in that place especially. What do you think we can deduce about him now and his ties to the religion that most people know him for, given his surviving the Holocaust? I think it is unfair to say that this is the ex-office saying he's cutting his ties altogether with Judaism, but it feels like it's taking more of a backseat for now with the new status quo for mutants. I know there are tons of characters whose religion still seems to play a vital role in their identity along with being a mutant, and this is just one line from one character who has clearly had enough and is happy with their new place in the world. People also obviously have many parts of themselves that make them whole, and those parts can alter in size, so to speak, as we grow. I think it just stuck out to me in such a way, since we're often always given the history of Magneto as the Holocaust survivor with his Jewish heritage, who's hated for a whole other set of reasons beyond being mutant. I recognize that my reading may not be super accurate, but that's why I hope to get your take on the scene and Eric's personal relationship with his spirituality. Thanks for the quality content each week. Every time I see the new episode is more than two hours long, I get all giddy and look for something to do just so I can dive deep into your conversation. Well, thank you for writing in. We touched on this a little bit earlier. Magneto is an atheist. So this is where Judaism is complicated, right? Because Judaism, not uniquely, but in terms of the major world religions at this point, pretty uniquely, by comparison to, say, Christianity, is an ethno-religion, very specifically. And so Magneto can be Jewish without being religiously Jewish. And I think that he very much is. He thinks about my people, meaning the Jews, frequently throughout the years. But he is not a religious person. And this is a crisis that a lot of Jews experienced after the Holocaust, was how can any of this be true if this was allowed to happen to us? His answer was to reject it completely. I don't see that as him rejecting his Jewish heritage. But I don't think Judaism as a religion is intrinsic to how he regards that heritage. That's my take. Spencer, what do you think? I think that I agree with a lot of that. Um, The thing about being Jewish is that the world will tell you you are a Jew. Right. No matter what you feel, you're still a Jew to these people. That's what the Nuremberg Laws were about. Defining as anyone with a Jewish grandparent as being Jewish. That has nothing to do with who believes what. Let me say something real quickly. Please. I have a Jewish grandparent. I am 
30% Jewish. My mother's also a little bit Jewish. This is part of why I wanted someone versed in all of this stuff to come on for this episode, because I have felt all my life very much Jewish because I have felt that two people who care, two anti-Semites, I am a Jew. Absolutely. And that made me think, well, what does that mean? And do I want to embrace that? And I decided, yes, I do. It actually matters to me. And, you know, my grandfather's family came here before the Holocaust, and he refused to look into what happened to the cousins. He did not want to know any of it. So we lost that part of our history. And it wasn't until my aunt found people at Ancestry.com who had survived, who were his cousins and whatnot, that we even knew they existed. And yet, the only people who consider me like not a Jew, that in my experience, are like very Orthodox Jews who care a lot about halacha. You know, I have a medal in my name. I quote unquote look Jewish in whatever sense. Certainly any time I offer a political opinion on Twitter, a neo-Nazi is going to call me a racial slur or whatever. I can't escape that. At a certain point, about eight or nine years ago, I just had an epiphany where I was like, well, then I want to stand and be counted. And I want to be a Jew in every respect, because guess what? Fuck you. Like, I am a Jew and I'm proud of being a Jew. So I guess what, long story short, I just wanted to offer that because what you're saying about the Nuremberg Laws, I think, is really significant. This goes back to your point about anti-Semitism, right, at the beginning of the episode, which is that the racialization of Jews and the fermenting of anti-Semitism, it is about creating a category, and it is not always us who decide who's in the category. That's what is tricky about this, and it's why there are sectarian divisions in Judaism, where some people would say, I don't count. But you can be Magneto and reject everything about yourself. You can change your name. Mm-hmm. You can stop worshiping. You can create a cover identity as a Sinti Romani like your wife and never acknowledge your Jewish heritage. You can reject all of it. But to bigots, you are still a Jew. And I think that that is one of the places where the mutant metaphor really hits with the Jewish parallel. And I also think it's why Magneto is vitally important as a Jewish character, even if he's not religious. Anyone who would go up the chimney with me is a Jew to me. That's what all my Orthodox friends say to me, is they're like, if you want in, you're in, baby. Like, you're family, and if you are going to claim it, we're in. So, you know. And, you know, I'm speaking as someone who, you know, does have two Jewish parents and was raised in something on the border between a conservative and reform household Mm -hmm. had a jewish education doesn't remember a lot of that jewish education i'll catch you up i'm really in the yeah i mean you're really studying like (laughs) i faked my way (laughs) um and that's magneto magneto understands his jewish experience in the context of a political project of power and and the lack of power. And in that sense, even if it was possible for him to ever not be a Jew, that is why Magneto is always Jewish. Yes. And whatever he happens to believe about practicing Judaism is an external thing and like not really the essence of what 
makes Magneto Jewish. It is part of what makes Kitty's Judaism. And I love, like, having, like, these two different poles of Jewish experience uh, represented and explored. And I think it would be very cool. I would like to see a more orthodox character. It doesn't have to be, like, a from character, but just someone who, like I said, there aren't that many Jewish characters in Marvel Comics, which is weird. Kitty is probably reformed. Like, Kitty doesn't keep kosher. And I would love if it was more of a spectrum and we had another character. The way that Soraya Kadir Mm -hmm. and Monet can represent two very broad-spectrum Muslim women, where Monet is not observant at all, and Dust is extremely observant, I don't feel like we have a Jewish character on that level yet. I just want to acknowledge that we have our most frummy Marvel Universe character as a creation of uh, Muslim authors G. Willow Wilson and Sana Amina in Ms. Marvel. And I love them for that. And I'm so grateful to them for that. My daughter has been Kamala Khan for birthday parties. I made a Ms. Marvel onesie <laughs> uh, when she was a baby that I that I cherish. Uh, and I just really want to acknowledge that because just it, it warms Well, that character so is a revelation. It's and G. Willow Wilson is incredible. I, I would love to see that just because I know that there were, I talked about this on the Wolverine episode with Jerry Duggan, but like there have been some complaints about Kitty not being, about like Kitty getting tattoos or like them cremating Kitty or things like that. And I just think, yeah, I mean, you're, Spencer is showing off his tattoos right now. I also have tattoos. Every Jew I know under the age of 40 has tattoos. My rabbi blessed my tattoos. Like, you know, like <laughs> this is not, this isn't really a thing. Right. Yeah. But I think that it would be good to have a character who is orthodox just because it would be nice to see i just think it's valuable and i'm not like dust is a character who's been used well and who's sometimes been used not so well but i think it's good that she exists i also think it's good that monet was established as a muslim character but monet doesn't give a shit about all of that stuff she doesn't observe purda she's not into that stuff because to her it's part of her cultural identity and not a religious identity Monet first mentions being a Muslim when faced by bigots. Like, yeah, I am a Muslim, what of it? You know, it's that same kind of defiant attitude where more observant Muslims probably think of Monet as a bad Muslim, but it's important to Monet that she stand and be counted as a Muslim when people are bigots, which I think is important. And yeah, I, I think that that is who Kitty is. I think that it's also who Eric is, much as he has fled from every signifier of his heritage as much as possible it is never outside of his thoughts in the mutant massacre as the mutant massacre is happening he starts thinking it's just like what happened to the jews when i was young in new mutants 40 there's an amazing scene outside the massachusetts academy when uh, emma has the avengers jump magneto where like so funny he's well (laughs) I, i think like he's being like bear hugged by Hercules, and he literally like tosses his arms and legs, like uses his full magnetic repulsion power, and literally screams "Never again!" at the Avengers. Yeah, never again. And you know, I, I am very down on First Class, the movie. Generally, I think it's kind of a mess. But the Xavier and Magneto stuff in it 
is very good and Fast Leather is very good. I agree. And the way that they explicitly are, you know, it's like, Eric, you can't hurt those people. They're just following orders. And it's like, that was the exact wrong thing to say. Because mm-hmm. now he's going to kill the shit out of them. <laughs> like, that and that's why, as you know, the Sonder Commando reveal in Testament is so smart. Because it means that to some extent, once upon a time, he followed orders. And then he couldn't take it anymore. And, and so he feels complicit in that a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think it's really good. Magneto's so cool. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> one, one last point about that in that direction. In one of the classic X-Men backup stories, uh, when he's in his Nazi hunting phase, yeah, he goes after a gang of Nazis in uh, an undefined, I believe, South American country. Um, I, I think we're supposed to understand it's you know Brazil or yeah, Argentina. Yeah, it's like Brazil, Argentina, but they don't say it. And Magneto confronts like a Nazi officer and doesn't kill him. He delivers him instead to the Israelis to stand trial. I'm guessing this is supposed to be commensurate with with the time that you know, from continuity's perspective, he's supposed to be living in Haifa. Yeah. But, you know, imagine the forbearance of being an Auschwitz survivor, being forced to be a Sonder commando, and being the master of fucking magnetism, and turning yeah. the Nazis over for a trial, in which the Nazi, of course, says, what do you think a, a Jew can possibly afford me in terms of a fair trial? And, like, you could just see, like, I wanted to narrate Magneto. It's like, all right, have it your way, motherfucker. Die right then here. Then I'll kill you then. <laughs> yeah. Right, like... yeah. Well, and there's a really great, I, it's possible we're thinking of the same story. I need to go back and reread those. But in Classic X-Men, I think, 19, you mentioned Isabel, like, yeah. his uh, doctor. Part of that story is that he's, like, in Rio de Janeiro, and he targets the wrong Nazis. Because he targets a Nazi who's working for the Americans now. Yeah, he targeted someone who got paperclipped. Yep. If people don't know what Operation Paperclip was, it was the CIA's exfiltration. Google it. (laughs) For Nazis to go work for the United States. So he it's this guy Hans Richter, who is like was an SS officer or whatever, and Magneto is doesn't know that he's only supposed to hunt down Nazis that aren't helping America. And so he hunts down this guy and his handler, Control, is the only name we get, is so incensed that they murder Isabel as like a message to Maggie. Like, don't think you can go make your own decisions. Some of these people are valuable. You're here serving our interests, not your interests. And that's when he stops Nazi hunting on behalf of government. It's amazing. Because he's like, oh, oh, I see humans need to die. Yeah, exactly. Like Your whole species has to go now. And that, to me, that is one of Claremont's... Finest hours. Because that is the only thing that explains 60s Magneto, is that story. It is just... Because you're like, you know what? If I'm Magneto now, yeah, fuck you. Fuck you. It's incredible, especially because of the way that story ends. That, by the way, let's just point out that, like, you should treasure, it's on Marvel Unlimited, you should treasure 
classic X-Men 19 because there's no fucking way Disney would ever publish it. And like <laughs> you're never going to see that. It again. is an incredibly subversive left-wing comic book. Yeah. Like it ends with Magneto like saving or oh, this actually might be classic 12 that ends like this. I forget. But one of these issues ends with Magneto saving human beings and like basically saying I am not entirely willing to get on board with, like, you know, wholesale slaughter of people. Yeah, I mean, I love it. And I always think of, there's a, there's just, like, the way he, when he, like, summons his full power on Control. Oh, yeah. So the thing is, like, Control, this guy, the handler, wears this device that protects him from Magneto's powers. And when he kills Isabel, like, you think you're in control here? Like, I just killed your friend. Magneto is so enraged by A, like, the murder of his friend, and B, the fact that these people are chastising him for attacking the wrong Nazi, that he overloads the device. I love an overload the device moment I've mentioned a couple times, like, when Madeline Pryor overloads Sinister's devices in Inferno. (laughs) It appears your devices have limits and I do not. I'm a sucker for a Claremont device overloading scene. But it's a truly scary moment. Magneto is terrifying on this page. And he says, Little man, have you no notion of who you're dealing with? I am Homo Superior, the next generation of humanity heir apparent to this paltry planet. As Cro-Magnon supplanted Neanderthal, so shall we you. And I have you to thank, Control, for showing me the true path. And Control says, you're insane. And Magneto says, you are like children, intellect and power without the maturity to use either responsibly, unfit to rule lives or worlds, better to be ruled instead by one who shall make sure you know and keep your place. And that is so brilliant because it is a really tall order, as we've illustrated, to the point where Morrison was like, I don't buy it, Mm -hmm. to rehabilitate 60s Magneto and make him make sense with the 80s character that Claremont has established. And it is this classic X-Men backup that is... Now, also 12, which is the one where the lynch mob burns his daughter, Anya, alive in their house. On panel. On panel. On panel. Those two really... You're just sort of like, you know what? I get it. Like, I'd be pretty... I might start a Brotherhood of Evil Mutants myself for a minute. You know? Ex-office, get at me for some Brotherhood stuff. (laughs) A last, you know, little bow tie on that one. How incredible it is and how characteristically Claremont and X-Men in the 80s it is that, like, two of the absolute most important Magneto stories are classic X-Men backups. Classic X-Men backups, yeah. You get so much in those backups, though, because that's where he had the opportunity to flesh out the villain. And just run wild. And run all through the timeline. Like, yeah. that's also where he fixes the Phoenix stuff. In the sense of, like, well, I had to retcon this Phoenix Force thing together. Let me do some backup stories explaining how the hell any of it makes sense, you know? Like, he used it as a way to suture some of the more ill-fitting aspects of the big tapestry of continuity he was working with. We have two questions that are sort of similar, so I'm going to read them both, and I think that we're both going to be in violent agreement on this, but <laughs> it's something I really do think is important and that I'd like to see discussed more, particularly as we approach the 
horrifying prospect of the X-Men having to be integrated into the MCU and how that will be done. So Kyle Cantor's writes, with Marvel's sliding timescale and the increasing gap between present day and the Holocaust, it seems inevitable that Marvel will have to create another fictional analog, like the CN Kong War replacing the Vietnam War in continuity, problematic as that is. My question is how Marvel will be able to honor and preserve the memory of the Holocaust, not just in their continuity, but also as an integral part of Magneto's trauma and worldview. I love your podcast. Thanks so much for the data files and conversations in each episode. Hashtag justice for Maggie. Well, you're correct on that. Absolutely. And then Patrick writes, Hey, Connor, huge fan of the podcast. It makes my drive to work so much better. I have seen a lot of talk about revamping Magneto's origin due to him having to be older the further we move away from the Holocaust. Some people have suggested other genocides that have taken place in more recent decades. While I understand that point, I feel the Holocaust specifically is just far too important to his character and the hypocrisy of his actions sometimes that it would feel strange to alter that for the sake of not having to excuse his age, which they've already done with things in the past like de-aging. I'd love to hear your take on this and whether or not you think the Holocaust can remain a viable origin for him. P.S. Thank you for making me appreciate Captain Britain. Well, you're welcome. Captain Britain rules and everyone should read all of the classic Captain Britain stuff. To answer this question, and I'm, I think Spencer's probably going to agree with me, I would be violently offended if they changed Magneto's backstory. I think it is 100% intrinsic to the character. And more importantly, and this is something that I think you got at, Magneto's experience as an Ashkenazi Jewish Holocaust survivor is a very specific experience that informs almost everything about the character. And you can't just like genocides are not fungible. You can't just swap out the Holocaust for, let's say the Rwandan genocide and have it be the same character or have it have the same implications in terms of world history, in terms of geopolitics. It's a very unique situation, not because the Holocaust is more important than any other genocide, but just because that's the one that this character is written around. And I don't think you can just trade them out. There's a lot of talk with the MCU coming of the idea that they might cast black actors as Xavier and Magneto. There are black Jews. There are black Jews. I'm fine with that. That's what I said. I said as, as long as he's a black Jew. But I also do think that the fact that Xavier and Magneto are white is sort of important to the characters in the sense that what you said, Patrick, about the hypocrisy of Magneto's actions sometimes, I think that both Magneto and Xavier are prone to resting on the fact that they can pass as part of the majority, as part of the group in power. And I think that that is an intrinsic question of the Jewish experience. It is an intrinsic question of anti-Semitism. There are many white presenting, white coded, white passing, just straight up white, however you want to define it. It's a complicated question. I was white Jews. Mm -hmm. There are lots of white Jews like Stephen Miller, for example, the architect of some of the most heinous human rights violations of the Trump administration who have chosen whiteness over their Jewishness, mm -hmm. who have chosen to become proximal to white supremacy in order to unburden themselves of their own whatever. I mean, I'm psychoanalyzing someone now who I don't know, but that's how it reads to me. And I think that the ability of white Jews to do that and to have that option is different from the experience of most people of color, 
and I think is part of the tension of Magneto's character. With Xavier, I just think Xavier is like a smug white man, and that is like part of his character. Yeah. Um, but like, listen, if you know, I, I am always for diverse casting, and I'm always for updating stories. My thing is just, as we've mentioned a couple of times, there are so few Jewish characters in comics, despite the fact that Jewish creators invented the superhero as we know it. And there are almost no characters who are prominent Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, in part because of the time issue you mentioned. I just think taking that away from Magneto would be a big mistake. I think that there are better ways to update the character than that. I think that for a movie, you can just put him on ice. (laughs) Back in the day, Captain America was on ice for like five years. You know, it's only 75 now because he has to have been around for World War II. So just do it with Magneto. Have him defrost whenever he needs to meet Xavier in Haifa and hang out with Gabrielle Holland. Like, that's not that difficult to do. But I just think it's so important. And I think that part of all of the difficult stuff we're talking about here in this episode relies on Magneto as a Jew who can abandon that with an alias or whatever if he so chooses and is making a choice as to what he wants to embrace or not embrace and i i just think that that is where his story doesn't easily scan with another racial minority experience that's that's just my hot take uh spencer thoughts as you expected you know violent agreement here's why magneto must be a holocaust survivor I grew up with survivors. I did not realize until later in life that I took for granted that a normal experience that people have was knowing about the Holocaust. That a normal experience people had was knowing about the Holocaust through the perspectives of those who found a way to survive the Holocaust and to empathize with Holocaust survivors, and to identify with Holocaust survivors. We are almost entirely living in a world in which all of the survivors have passed on. And we remember survivors increasingly through memory, and the stories we tell that we pass down through what we've recorded. We're also living at a time in which the nature of mediated reality is up for grabs in a way that serves the most noxious authoritarian purposes possible. And for a great deal, I believe, of American culture, Magneto is probably their most direct connection Mm -hmm. to the Holocaust. And it certainly will be in fiction as time passes. And it is very important that we remember the Holocaust not just as a thing that, frankly, I can't believe I have to say this, but not just as a thing that happened. Well, God, I know, right? But really, I mean, think about how we're starting to see, as the survivors die, new waves of revisionism that... Absolutely. And we don't, we're not going to have the primary source people to say, that's not what happened, I was there. And to me... You know, beyond any practical consideration of, you know, how you present an MCU Magneto, the further in, you know out you get um, from the actual Holocaust, 
the most important function I believe Magneto serves, at, you know, at this point and then, you know, at all future points in fiction in that point is Holocaust memorialization. And no other consideration, narrative, aesthetic, or political, I believe, can trump that. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's absolutely essential. I think that part of what makes him powerful, part of what makes him the most powerful Jewish character in fiction, in many ways, is that he is a Holocaust survivor who can never die. Would you not have to be the most powerful Jew that was to have survived the Holocaust? Right. And, and to still be kicking and for it to be 2020 and you're the head of the state and you're doing important things and you're in a superhero. Like, he is eternal because he is a comic book character. He survived the Holocaust and they are all dying of old age in reality. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so important. I would never, ever want to lose that. And you can come up with whatever sci-fi explanation you need for why he's going to live 300 years or whatever. You cannot possibly get rid of that, I think, in any version of him. So I think that the movies just have to figure out how to make that work. Mm -hmm. That's my that's my feeling. Nicholas Cleary writes, Hi there, day one listener, first time questioner, really adore the pod, have already recruited another flat scan into regular listening. My question is about Eric's sort of zigzag path out of and back and forth and into and back out of capital V villainy. It seems like it's always dependent on the writer whether Magneto acts as a full-on supervillain, a questionable radical antihero, a loose cannon, or a straight-up savior. Is there an overall arc to his moral development? Is it a full redemption? Or is an evolving understanding of the mutant minority metaphor actually just slowly redeeming those who have opposed Magneto and allowing them to finally come around to his political perspective? Or something closer to it, given that it's changed pretty dramatically? We've sort of covered elements of this, but I liked the question because of the latter part, which is like, is it just that the evolving understanding of minority politics has led us to realize that Magneto is right? And I would say the answer to that is yes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it goes back to, I mean, Jay Edden talked about this a little bit in our Cyclops episode. He approaches the X-Men through a disability lens with the minority metaphor. And that's how that politic has advanced. I approach it more, and I said this in that episode, from the queer politics or Jewish politics angle. And that's how those politics have advanced. Like, it, it is just a fact that the comforting Xavier's dream of the 60s, where it was all about assimilation and hand in hand with your fellow man, whatever, that ethos has been found wanting. And I think that as more and more people who grew up reading these comics start writing these comics, which is now we're generations into that, right, at this point, I think that you're going to see a world where Magneto is more in line with the writers than Xavier is. And I think that Krakoa is really illustrative of that. I think that this is the compromise. But as Spencer has pointed out, it is a lot more what, Eric and Emma have always wanted mm -hmm. than what Charles has wanted. I think that that's just a fact. And I is because the readership has changed <laughs> to some extent. I got, I got nothing to add to that. that yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I just think that's exactly what it is. 
here's a fun one. Spencer Graham writes, is Magneto supposed to have a German accent? Given that he's pushing 100. (laughs) It's a good question. Yeah. Given that he's pushing 100 at this point due to the sliding timescale, do you think his accent has changed? Given that nearly all auditory media portrays Eric with either a vague British accent or an American accent, I'm honestly unsure. I think Magneto is the kind of person who, we've already talked about this, he went out of his way to kind of de-ethnicize himself after the Holocaust, and particularly after, like, the loss of his wife and child. I think he is the kind of person who would make an effort to neutralize his accent. So I like that he's been presented as sort of vaguely British because I feel like he would do that over the years. But should he have a weird German vowel here or there? I think so. Yeah, I would enjoy that. I, I hear Magneto was Bernie Sanders. So, no. See, I mean... <laughs> that's, that's, the other, that's the other perspective, right? No, Bernie, no Magneto sounds like, like people I grew up with who are, you know, my, my parents' generation. Of Brooklyn Jew. See, that's interesting. To me, that's what The Thing sounds like. Oh, definitely he does. Yeah. And it's what, like, Kitty's father sounds. You know what I mean? But, like, with Magneto, he definitely has more of, like, a European quality to be. But I I don't know. I am once again asking (laughs) you to put these nuclear weapons away, or I will take them and use them appropriately. You know, that's a pretty compelling argument. <laughs> no, of course. I, he should just, like, have the occasional, like, Yiddish inflection. Yeah. Well, like, I was when talking, he gets real pissed off. I was just talking about this with someone about Emma, because I don't hear Emma's, like, the, the faux British accent that Morrison established that a lot of other writers have really run with. I don't hear it as a British accent. I think it's, like, a mid-Atlantic Catherine Hepburn kind of accent. Mm-hmm. And that the cab driver just said, is that a British accent? And she doesn't answer the question. I think it's just that she naturally has a heinous Boston Brahmin accent mm. that she has worked very hard to get rid of, and now she just sort of sounds like an old Hollywood actress, and it sounds very affected and mattered, and people are just like, is that British? I don't know what that is. I think that how we hear characters is very individual and personal, and I support you hearing Magneto with whatever accent you choose. That would be my answer. But I I think, I actually thought Fassbender did a good job in part because like he is irish and german but like he did it was sort of like it's a british accent but every now and then you hear kind of a german yeah it clips in a little yeah Yeah. i thought that was good he kind of like does what nikolai costa does by accident yeah true game of thrones which is like he's doing a british accent but every now and then you go that man is danish (laughs) you know like it's just not quite right so yeah that's my answer there we have two more questions that relate to magneto and his children who currently aren't his children which since I've already thrown down the gauntlet and said I won't do a Wanda or Pietro episode until Marvel fixes it, this is probably the best chance anyone's going to have to ask Wanda and Pietro questions, so let's have at it. Luke Reddick writes, Magneto is a character who's moved back and forth between hero and villain a lot over the course of his history, to what seems to be varying degrees of success. But usually whenever he rejoins the X-Men, he's generally accepted, even if there might be some initial tension, compared to other longtime villains who join the team sometimes, Mystique, Juggernaut, etc., Conversely, it feels as though Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch can never get out from beneath the shadow of being his children. It seems to be a recurrent theme that any flaw or mistake they make is attributed to him, and throughout their history they get viewed with distrust because of it. In a lot of ways, it feels like the sins of the father hold longer-lasting consequences than anything the father himself faces. What do you think this says about Magneto as a character, and is it why he can never seem to make peace with those two of his children? P.S. I know at the moment this question isn't technically canon, but it was for a large chunk of Magneto's publication history, and if we say that they're his kids enough, maybe it will manifest in reality. 
Well, Hope Springs Eternal. I think that's an interesting question, and I think it's because Pietro and Wanda are kind of fuck-ups, and the Avengers are not the most understanding people as a rule. I'm not a huge Avengers expert, but the Avengers stuff I have read generally pertains to Pietro and Wanda because they were X-Men characters, so I gave a shit. Or to Carol Danvers because Claremont essentially made her an X-Men character. Or anything featuring Monica Rambeau, who is a queen. But that's the only Avenger I really have followed through non-X related things. I would say that Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch are always on the outside with the Avengers, historically speaking, because they were mutants. So there was this sort of unspoken thing where that was looming over to begin with. And then once it was established, also where Magneto's long lost children, I think that that inherent tension just became really underlined. But I'm not sure that that is really for Wanda what keeps holding her back. What keeps holding her back is that writers make her insane all the time. (laughs) It's much more about like Cthon and all of that shit than it's about making her. I think that this is true for Pietro. And that's why you'll notice the Scarlet Witch is still a character who's around after this stupid retcon that they're not his kids. She's like doing stuff. Sometimes it's really fucking unbearable stuff. But she's doing stuff. I mean, like, we can't even get into Remender's Uncanny Avengers with Wanda because I think that more than anything else, what makes her like an irredeemable character to me is the way she talks about mutants in that book. Yeah, it's it's absolutely. despicable. Yeah, as it's, the it's woman who genocided gross. them, yeah. it's disgusting. It's like I'm sick of this martyr act from you, X Men. Like, shut the fuck up, Wanda Maximoff. Like, don't you fucking dare. But you'll notice Pietro's no place. And that's because Pietro's whole deal as a character is that he's Magneto's kid who will never please Magneto because he is gross to Magneto in a lot of ways in the way that he conducts himself and is the disappointing child to his, like, you know, Jewish world leader father. (laughs) And that is Pietro's whole deal. And when you take that away from Pietro, he's not an interesting character. So... If the Scarlet Witch is a mutant, she's our Stephen Miller. Yes, fully. That is going to be fuck. That is going yeah. <laughs> to be a bull quote that gets us yelled at. But guess what? He's absolutely right. Um, I do love that uh, we have an X Factor book led by a speedster that is not Quicksilver. I love yeah. that Leah went with Northstar. Mm-hmm. I am also an Alpha Flight super fan. Love that for you uh, because of my X Men stuff. Uh, I, I I know a shitload that I shouldn't about Alpha Flight, which for a very long time... You're talking just... about Goblin and the Dream Queen? Oh my god. <laughs> Drawn by Jim Lee. True. Dream Queen debuted the month I was born. That's like the most notable Marvel character to debut the month I was born, is the Alpha Flight villain Dream Queen. They they do some like irredeemably transphobic stuff with Sasquatch that is best like never discussed Yeah, that again. stuff's bad. Yeah. That stuff's real bad, yeah. Um... But, um, you know, I would just also say that uh, the X-Men, I, I just take issue a little bit with the premise of, of, of uh, laid out in the, in the question, because lots of times when Magneto is with the X-Men, like particularly the original X-Men, like do not accept him or like yeah. are constantly like 
talking about how like remember all of those times you tried to kill me to kill me when I was like, a teenager yeah, right like so I... like this it doesn't it doesn't totally sit easily but you know definitely to you know go back to um the point about how writers now have sort of you know resolved in favor of Magneto, you know you know at least for the time being you know it's it's really wonderful to see you know in sword number one a character like frenzy you know admiring yes. magneto and saying there was a period where i you know practically worshipped him i love that scene because first of all i love joanna cargill so i'm just very excited to have joanna back in a big way. I also think having her be the ambassador is really cute because she was, the, if you recall, back in the day, Genosha's ambassador to the UN. Oh, I, didn't, was, I don't think I knew that. Oh, wow. Oof. When Magneto was in charge of Genosha, he made Cargill his ambassador and she was not very diplomatic and it was very funny. <laughs> and so now for her to find an ambassadorial role that mostly requires her to hit aliens in the face is like a perfect beat for her now frenzy is a really interesting character because she's a lot like magneto if you go back to her earliest appearances in the 80s she is pure evil and over the course of it's kind of mike carey who did it but over the course of the last 10 years or so she's become an anti-hero and I loved that scene because what she says there is, you know, there was a time when I worshipped that man. And the point is, I no longer do. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that was the moment. But yeah, he's pretty impressive, huh? Like, I've outgrown my acolyte days. But <laughs> he sure is charismatic, isn't he? Like, that is, you can't, can't you understand how I wound up in a cult for a while? Yeah, and like, I kind of love that about fatal attractions in general, that like, fatal attractions mm -hmm. is fundamentally like a story about how you view Magneto's legacy, and like, whether Magneto's yeah. legacy is a toxic legacy. And that's why I also love that Amelia Vogt is on the Totally. I noted that she's the only one he doesn't talk to. Oh, good point, yeah. In the issue. Although like, where is Unishion? Where is Unishion? They have a whole point of having an exoskeleton person and it's armor from the Weed Next Men. And I know that she's popular, but give Carm a cute jacket and put her on the space station. Carmelo Unishion, where is she? No, but more seriously, what I hope that means is that she's up to like no good with Exodus somewhere and they like have a plan for her. Because I've always enjoyed her. She has a flashy, cool power. I mean, we have if we have Magneto in space, we're going to have to revisit you know, Asteroid M slash Avalon. Right. And Unishon is the one who, like, keeps everybody yeah. alive as they're crashed. She, like, pulls a Jean Grey. Exactly. She does exactly the, yeah. the Jean Grey yeah. uh, move when, when you know, to, to save Magneto. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's... And Scott. Cyclops yeah. is like, Unishon, don't fuck this up. <laughs> I'm trying. You know. But it's a personal force field. There's only so much I can do. By the way, just a, one quick aside, because that re reminds me of something. We we see a lot on panel of Magneto, like, dispatching people by, like, quickly cocooning them in metal and then throwing them some way. Yeah. And it occurred to me that, like, that's the only way we know of now to kill Wolverine, and Magneto never does it. No. He'll take, he he'll take the fucking... He'll, he'll, yeah. Right, he'll take the adamantium from out of his well, skeleton, also, but he won't actually to kill, kill to kill Wolverine, though, that way, they had to disable his healing factor first. If you recall. Yeah, and so, like at least Cyclops noticed, like, oh my god, if he doesn't have his healing factor, he's really <laughs> fucked. He's real fucked right now, yeah. That leads into the last reader question, which is also about Eric and his 
former kids. <laughs> um, is and forgive me if I get this name right. I think it's Turkish, and I'm sure it sounds super beautiful when I don't say it. Ekin Gulen writes, having recently read the incredible first issue of Sword, I have so many questions about our dear old Mag. I was surprised by his harsh rejection of Wanda in the Dawn of X because of their history, and him calling her pretender in this issue feels a little forced to me, especially the Skrull ambassador hinting at how the Krakowian view of Scarlet Witch may not be shared by Eric. Then a guy I was talking to on Scruff pointed out to me that there was a panel of Scarlet Witch's emails in a recent issue of The Strange Academy, where Mags emails her about catching up, and Beast also asked her to try a Krakowian gate, which is really funny in my opinion. So what are your thoughts on why Magneto might be concealing his true feelings toward Wanda, and whether we'll ever see a potential relationship reblossom between the two? Thank you so much for doing this podcast. It's been wonderful to listen to, and I really appreciate the work you put into the episodes. I don't have a lot of friends who read comics, and I'm very grateful that you're sharing you and your friends' conversations with the rest of us. Well, thank you for that. I have seen a lot of interpretations of that scene that totally don't scan with my interpretation. So I'm going to tell you how I read that. Um, but first and foremost, I want to thank you for letting us know about the conversations you're having about Marvel Comics on Scruff, because that delighted me. Although I hope, you know, please, well, you know, God knows where you are. Maybe there's no coronavirus anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm just very Amerocentric at this point. I'm just like, Scruff, be careful. But like, if you're in Australia, they're all out at the pub now. So, you know, who knows? In any case, the scene that he's talking about is a scene where basically the Skrull ambassador says, well, our emperor just married the Scarlet Witch's son, so it's a little awkward that the royal mother-in-law is an enemy of the state of your nation, diplomatically speaking. And Magneto says, ah, uh, yes, the pretender. And a lot of people seem to have interpreted that as him actually calling her that. But if you look at the lettering and his facial expression, it seems pretty clear to me that he's like muttering that in a way that should convey that he doesn't agree. Like that he is pained by the fact that that is what they're calling her, that this is something that is difficult for him. If you go back, Wanda's his favorite and always has been. That's part of why all of his stuff with Lorna is awkward now, because it's like, this isn't the daughter I wanted. And it's the only kid I have left. Like, what's that about? I don't know if we should view the Strange Academy email page as, like, canon. I think that's a, those are meant to be funny. And also, Strange Academy is not edited in the X office. You know, magic's in it, but I, I don't think you can necessarily look to this, like, here's hints for what's happening in the X-Men books. I do think that what Sword 1 it made clear, at least to me, was that Magneto is very conflicted about the way Krakoa regards the Scarlet Witch, is very conflicted about the way Exodus, his former disciple, is going around telling everyone that the woman he considers his daughter, no matter what the truth may be, is this evil pretender. It bothers him. And I think that that's what we're meant to take away from that. And I don't know where it's going, because I don't know if they're going to be allowed to undo that retcon from Axis. I hope they are. But I don't know. It feels like Hickman's building to something, though, doesn't it? It was really interesting this past week. There was that scene, and then also Storm is talking to Bishop in the waters and talks about something growing faster than Quicksilver. But the Q is capitalized? Mm. I found that very curious. I don't know. 
I feel like there's something there, but it's impossible to say until we know where the story is going to go. I don't know. Spencer, what do you think about Eric and Wanda and about that scene in S.W.O.R.D.? I did view it probably closer to viewing it as, like, Magneto muttering that, like, you know, Wanda is this, you know, problem for him and, you know, viewing her as, as indeed a pretender. I, I oh, So you think he agrees? I think he does. I think, I, you know, maybe, Interesting. maybe, okay. I'm, maybe I'm totally wrong. But, you know, from a bottom line perspective, especially with that issue of X-Men where Exodus is narrating the decimation. Yeah. I don't think they would be doing this if, like, Hickman did not have some plan. Right. For addressing Scarlet Witch. And, like, I, the way I, I kind of acclimated myself to understanding where, like, the state of the relationship is supposed to be was, like, the kind of, like, you know, punk rock looking data pages from Hoxpox that keep on saying, like, the decimation killed so many mutants. Yeah. That, like, we can't, you know, to go from, like, whatever mutant kind is after Genosha, after losing 16 million, to going down to, like, 100,000 to 198, or whatever the actual numbers are, that we are supposed to view the decimation as one of the great calamities of mutant kind. As a genocide. Yeah. What I think is difficult for some people who are Wanda fans is like, well, she wasn't in her right mind, right? Or like, the mutants mostly didn't die, they just got depowered. But now it's all better. Krakoa has fixed everything, why do you care? And it's like, well, because it's the principle of the thing. I also think, and this is just a fact, we can all debate Rick Remender's Uncanny Avengers all we want. As a Havoc fan, (laughs) I certainly have my issues with some of the characterization in that book. But I think that Havoc is being forced to deal with it. Because that led into his plot in Axis where he became evil because of a mind warp. And now he's like a crazy person and he's on Hellions trying to heal his mental state. Wanda, Uncanny Avengers was just a really, really bad look for Wanda. Let's just say it didn't happen. Let's just say it. Let's just say it didn't happen. But, like, the thing is, it's, like, the only thing of import she's done since she came back was that book, really. She had her own solo title for, like, a second that was mostly just about, don't worry, we're creating a new backstory for her. Like, it wasn't, you know what I mean? Like, it's not just that she did this, it's that she was so cold about it when mutants tried to talk to her about it in Uncanny Avengers. Mm-hmm. It's like, what do you mean mutant culture? There's no such thing. Like, you're being ridiculous. Yeah, Stephen Miller shit. Yeah, Stephen Miller shit. I'm not saying that she has to be beholden to that forever, but I think there's a lot of work to do. And I thought Empire was a good start, the Empire X-Men story with her, where she <laughs> tries to make amends and ends up just desecrating the corpses of 16 million mutants. Yeah. But like, you know what? You're trying. I think there is a story there and I think we'll get it. But there is something about Wanda that is more distressing to the average mutant than even someone like Apocalypse or Sinister or Selene. It's like they pointed out, you know, well, they're, they're willing to give amnesty to Selene. It's like, yeah, Selene's evil as hell. But they can believe she wants mutant kind to thrive. Right. And if she's going to behave herself. All right. We'll give this a shot. Wanda is this wild card in a way that 
makes her difficult to trust. I would just say, like, from, you know, you, you really can tell, and this can get also, like, some of the... You could channel Philip Roth for some of this stuff, and some of the better Philip Roth. Um, particularly, <laughs> like... Oh, man. The stuff that's not just, like, I'm mad at my ex-wife. <laughs> or I'm masturbating on my, you know, dead girlfriend's gravestone. Yeah, not great. Sorry, Magda. Right. <laughs> if anything could make Magneto disavow patrimony, it's the decimation. Yeah. Like, if we take Magneto as a character and what he stands for seriously, you would have simultaneously, like, this unforgivable act, precisely because it's such an outgrowth of how Wanda views the existence of mutants as this thing that has ruined her life. Yeah, and she's the ultimate self-hating person, right? Like, that is the thing. But you also get, like, an opportunity for a really profound reckoning with Magneto asking how he has failed if this is what, you know, his daughter's works are, if they decide, you know, either way. Like, right. you, you have a lot of material that you can still build off of and have it feel very true to both characters. I think you just have to take a second, and if you think about how Magneto's experience on the Holocaust evolved into his perception of mutant politics you have to picture wanda looking at him and saying no more jews yeah you do you just have to think of it that way essentially the way that that story shakes out is she's the ultimate self-hating jew she hates her father who is a zionist she creates a zionist fantasia out of her perception of him and then she decides no we jews we cause too much trouble no more jews and almost succeeds in eradicating the entire Jewish population. That is the story. And then the retcon makes it so, oh, and by the way, she's not even actually Jewish. And so I think that that's almost the lens you have to look at it when it's like, why are they so mad at Wanda specifically? It's because the betrayal of the species yeah. is so much deeper than anything the evil mutants have ever done to other mutants. It's so personal. And then to find out she was never even one of us, it was all a lie. You know, not a lie she told on purpose, but pretender has two meanings, right? It's like, yeah, she was pretending to be a mutant, theoretically, or she's the pretender to Magneto's throne. Like, she wasn't his actual daughter. And most royal pretenders believe that they are the legitimate heir to the throne until they are informed that that's not the case. And just with... You have such an option also, like, with, you know, whether it's Warna or whether it's Wanda or whether it's Pietro, to, like... Have you ever read Mouse? Yeah, of course. So, like, in the way that Art Spiegelman recognizes that he'll just never be as good as the son who didn't survive the Holocaust. Like, Wanda, Pietro, and Lorna are never going to be as good in his eyes as Anya. As Anya, who burned to death in the fire. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, like, that's another option for how you treat Magneto's very difficult relationship to his children, whether they're still his children or not, and right. reconcile it with how Magneto feels about the necessity of his actions in order to make sure that mutant children have a future. Yeah, I would agree. I want them to turn it back because I think it's more interesting if they are his children 
I think that grappling with the decimation is more interesting if Wanda is a mutant. And I think it seems like maybe we're going in the direction of fixing that, but I just don't know. It seems much more possible that they will now that Disney has the rights to the mutants back. Mm -hmm. Since that's probably... How we're going to get MCU X-Men. Well, and it's why they changed the twins in the first place, right? It seemed like it was a rights issue. So here's hoping, fingers crossed. Spencer, before we start to wrap up, are there any final thoughts you'd like to share on Eric slash Magnus slash Max? They're just never going to get me to call him Max slash Magneto. I guess here's the only thing I, I guess I would I would say to kind of sum up. By the way, there's a fantastic Quicksilver moment in X-Men 4 from 1963 mm-hmm. where like Quicksilver has made it clear already that like he's only here because his sister is here. Like he doesn't have yeah. any like he doesn't buy any of this like magneto shit or brotherhood shit but as he like absconds from a fight with the x-men he does nevertheless like scream at them that they're fucking cops and fuck them and like he just goes <laughs> no although i could not allow a nation to be destroyed my place is still with them meaning the brotherhood and then he yells back at cyclops and iceman you are the betrayers of homo superior expect no mercy next time we meet and just like wow even quicksilver like, can recognize that, like, that, like, legacy of the X-Men is, is completely fucked. I also think it's significant that, like, of all of the times that the X-Men and Magneto fight, the vast majority of them, the X-Men start the fight. Like, Magneto, even back in the 60s, like, might be doing stuff against humanity, but he's trying kind of constantly throughout his character history to not fight the X-Men. No, he's trying to explain to them, I'm doing Why you're wrong. Join me. Yes, exactly. Like, and can you, and, and that's also one of the most amazing things about it is that like Magneto, like remember how shocking I, I, well, I'll speak for myself. I found it shocking when Colossus defects because you never yeah. see that. You only ever see Magneto's acolyte, well, not literally the acolytes, but like, people who bandwagon with Magneto becoming X-Men. Magneto's followers, yeah. That's right. And, like, it, it kind of underscores to me something sort of lesser noticed about Magneto that deserves just, like, a second of scrutiny, which is that Magneto, by and large, does Xavier the courtesy of not trying to recruit X-Men. And can you imagine what Magneto would have accomplished if he had Storm? If he had Jean? Well, right, yeah. He's already Magneto. He's already practically unstoppable. Right. Yeah, and you look at the Acolytes and it's like, they're fine. But if he had any of the real heavy hitters at Xavier's, he would have done a lot more damage. If he'd even had Lorna. Yeah, it's if he had Wanda, for Christ's sake. That's his own fault. He had Wanda until he didn't. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think that that's a good point. He does sort of keep to his own. He He's not trying to, you and I, Cyclops, we're not so different. Like, he doesn't do that. <laughs> right. He's not trying to seduce them to the dark side. Unless they'll all come. Chuck included. Like, you know, it's sort of a, an interesting thing. Well, thank you for being my guest and for taking so many notes and for being so prepared. I really do appreciate <laughs> how comprehensively you think about this stuff. And I am glad that we got to tackle this really important and really complicated character. Well, I just want to thank you. This is 
absolutely my favorite podcast. I've been looking forward to this since you asked me to do this one. I'm still riding high off being on the Beast episode. I'm grateful for being thus far outside of teeny fucking Howard. The only yeah, the, there's guests. only been two returning guests. So, so thank yeah. you so much. I also love that you know X of Swords wrap up that that you and Teeny did. That was that was so amazing. She's, she's the um, best. And you know, I I want to just underscore that if there is a way for the Cerebro fandom to get together on the internet, I want in. I will investigate some options and I will get back to you. Not to because I don't think it's a bad idea. No, it's fine. I mean, like. I, there's a bunch of things I'm going to figure out over the new year kind of holiday time because my industry is kind of shutting down for a bit, uh, as it always does. And like, I have some merch I want to figure out. I have like, there's this stuff. There's stuff coming. Mm. We're going to figure it all out. We're going to take it into 2021. Bigger and more beautiful than ever before. It's Cerebro's year. Yes. I hope it's all our year because 2020 fucking sucked. So why don't you plug your upcoming book and tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media if they haven't already after the Beast episode, which they should have, frankly. But, you know, better late than never. Thank you so much. In August now, uh, my book has gotten pushed back with everyone else's book. Um, In August, Viking will publish Reign of Terror. Uh, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. It is my first book. It is about all of the uh, noxious political legacies that the war on terror had and their consequences. You can find me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, primarily at Attackerman, and most days you can read me at The Daily Beast. I noticed you beefing with Bill Crystal on Twitter the other day. I couldn't help myself. I was like, ah, there goes Spencer. I try not to do that so much anymore. I'm an old man and I have a child. No, I don't like fighting on the internet, Twitter but like if you're going to pick you know, a fight with someone. There are some times where you just go like, no, Bill Crystal this. was, a, it was yeah. a fun one. I like that. You're like, how dare you retweet this, Bill Crystal? I'm talking about you. Yeah, well, look, sometimes <laughs> you got to let them you know. You were. I mean, yeah. sometimes you got to let them know. got to tell them about themselves. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes as well as transcripts, and I will get more of those up over the holidays, hopefully, at CerebroCast.com, which is the official landing page for the podcast. You can email Cerebro with your comments, questions, and feedback at CerebroCast at gmail.com. And uh, because I'm trying to get ahead of the holidays a little bit, I will give you a little exclusives. So as you know already, next episode is about Rogue. The two episodes after that will be about two more obscure characters that I quite enjoy. The first will be about Megan. Ooh, yeah. Wife of Brian Braddock and champion of the original Excalibur team. And the episode after that will be about Sage, also known as Tessa a complicated character who is a walking retcon. So that should be a fun character file. I am looking forward to the new year. Thank you all so much for your support and for being so lovely to talk to online and in the email account. I appreciate you and I hope that you are enjoying the show every week. So thank you for listening and until next time, bye. X-Men, X-Men.
In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men. <laughs>